Trevor Lewis on Dan Hanhuis. Made a nice evasive move, got away from Jared Stoll, but he can't get away from Lewis. Hanhuis is down, Jared Stoll shoots, scores! Welcome, everybody. It is the Sportscasters proper here on April 24th, Tuesday, in a chilly for April Buffalo, New York. This is Season 2, Episode 16 of the show, and I am the host, Steve Bennett, with my co-host, Don Russ. How are you doing today, Don? Very well. All right. We got a busy, busy show for you today, and I guess if I... One thing we like to do a lot in this show is kind of peel back the curtain sometimes. You know, we like to give people kind of an inside view of what it's like putting this show together. And sometimes it's difficult because to book three guests, usually you need to email five or six people to make sure you can get three guests. Well, this week we ended up getting four people who came on and we were gonna we did the interviews earlier and we were gonna maybe hold one but they all are just so good. So it's a little bit of a longer show. Last week was one of the tightest shows we've ever done. It was uh season two, episode fifteen. We had Kirk Morrison on the show, uh the authors of Game Over, uh about Jerry Sandusky and the culture of silence at Penn State. We had Rob Pizzo and it was a really tight and kind of short show. I think it was it was definitely under two hours. I think it was around an hour and twenty five minutes. And that's not what you're used to here at the Sportscast. You're used to getting that one long piece of audio that you can kind of break down as you like during the week until we're on again the following week. This week, it's going to be a much bigger piece of audio. On the show this week, we have Adam Rank from the Dave Damashek Football Program and NFL.com to talk about the fantasy football, uh, which we're going to, Don and I are going to talk about a little bit. And also, his favorite hockey team is the Kings. And we played that highlight off the top. He's going to talk a little bit about the Kings advancing and what that means for Los Angeles. Also, we have our good buddy Alex Belf on the program uh, today to talk about the Yankees, the great start they've gotten off to, especially Derek Jeter, who's just ripping the ball, batting over 400, which is a lot different than his start last year. If you remember, there was some talk that he was potentially washed up around this time last year. Also, we are going to close out one of our book club books of the month. This month, we're going to do an interview with Grantland.com's Mark Titus, the author of Don't Put Me in Coach, My Incredible NCAA Journey from uh, the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench. And also, at the request of Ford Kendrick, who's one of our best fans, follows us on Twitter, we really appreciate how much he likes the show. Uh, he said, why don't you get one of the guys from the Basketball Jones podcast on so you can talk some NBA hoops before the playoffs. And we have Tass. Tass, right? That's how you say Tass. it? Yeah, ass with a T. Tass. That's, what he, that's the way yep. he told that's us. That's the way he told to us. Remember he said it. it's, yep. it's uh, ass with a T. So Tass is on the show today to talk about the NBA. So we got a ton to do. Also, I want to remind you about our other podcast. It's uh, Football Nation Presents the Sportscasters. We, you can find that on iTunes and www.footballnation.com. This week, our show is with Stuart Mandel. Also on the show today, uh, besides the interviews, we're going to update the book club. When we do update the book club, I have some big announcements about some f- future guests that you may or may have not seen on Twitter. 
Don and I are going to give our first version 1.0 mock drafts, first 12 picks, fantasy football. Also, we're going to preview the two game sevens that are set in the NHL playoffs at the time that we are recording, and we're going to do pick four. So we have a ton to do today. Let's try and keep it tight. You know we start each show off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. We're going to talk more about this with Tass later, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But one of the most notorious NBA basketball players out there, of course, is Ron Artest, who is no longer named Ron Artest because before the season this year, he took a page out of Ocho Cinco's book and renamed himself Meta World Peace. Well, Meta World Peace wasn't very peaceful on Sunday (laughs) as he laid a vicious, vicious elbow on a member of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, It was one of the worst elbows that I've seen in a while. And uh, Joe Hayden, the player who who got the elbow, is still injured. And uh, there's some questions as to whether or not he's going to be available in the playoffs. But Meta World Peace is going to go down for this. As I said, we're going to talk with Tass more about it. So I don't want to go too far into it. But I did want to mention I seen it. It was nasty, and I'm on board for 10 or 15 games or whatever Commissioner Stern and the NBA Discipline Department decides. Matter world peace. It's going to have to go down for that one. All right, this week, the first thing I learned is that I can't predict NHL playoffs. Uh, Philly upsets Pittsburgh, the Vegas odds-on favorite in wins in four. L.A., Big upset, eight over one wins in uh, wins in five. Pitts Philly one and six. I'm at four to two. Uh, St. Louis, I picked San Jose. I just thought they would score more goals. Four to one, they lose that series. Phoenix four to two over Chicago in a series where every game but the last one went to yep. overtime. Uh, Nashville, the one series I did call right that's over one in five games. I didn't think it would be that easy for them. Now the question is, uh, a lot of it seems we to might be... both be wrong about the. New Jersey series too, by the sure, way. Sure, yeah. Because we both picked New Jersey and Florida has a chance to to close that off. Right. And we both picked the Rangers, and the Rangers are definitely at risk. Otto has a chance to win Game Seven there. Absolutely. So what I've seen, what I have noticed, and I hadn't been the case so much since before, or since yeah, since before the lockout, was that the league really seems to be getting back to a goaltending slash defense wins championship league. And I guess I'm wondering why. Do you notice that they're calling? less penalties this year. Uh, it's just every team in the playoffs, and there really hasn't been hideous goaltending because usually that's Philadelphia's problem. They get goaltending that's just really, Well, there's really been bad. some hideous goaltending. I mean, Philadelphia's well, has been, been good. Flurry was awful. Yeah. And Crawford led in two of the worst overtime Stanley yeah, Cup goals I've true. ever seen, and that sunk Chicago. That's true. To answer your question, you know, I think we've just seen each season – since the lockout, things get a little bit tighter. I think it's been slow but subtle. I think the new NHL got old really fast. Each year, it's been a subtle, 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 get closer and closer and closer to the old NHL. I think we've just about gotten all the way there this time. And 
Well, I, think, I mean, it's still not quite back. I mean, you watch like NHL classic playoff games. It's amazing what people had to fight through back then just to get right. to the neutral zone. But yeah, it, it has taken a real big decline, uh, and it's allowed some underdog teams to 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 win and uh, knock off some powerhouses. Yeah, it's, I mean, the the Blackhawks are out because Mike Smith was a much better goalie than Crawford. There's just no doubt about that. The top two defenses in the league, the Kings and uh, Blues, both won their series handily. Pake Rene was a better goalie than Jimmy Howard, Yep, especially in the deciding game where it just didn't seem like you are going to beat Pekka Rene. The Ottawa and New York series is going back-to-back between which goalie can steal the game. You know, it seems like it's either Anderson stealing a game for Ottawa or it's Lundqvist yeah. stealing a game for the Rangers. And I had a laugh. Lundqvist is definitely going to be getting fined for his outburst the other night, complaining about the, the, in the Jason yeah. Spezza goal that made that game 3-2. to two. But it's been an interesting playoffs. Home teams have had a lot of trouble winning. Uh, road teams have won a lot of games, yep. especially in overtime. So it's been a really strange playoff. And what we're going to do later in the show is Don and I are going to tell you what we think Boston, Washington, New York, and Ottawa need to do to win a game seven. Don's going to take the road teams. I'm going to take the home team. The last thing real quickly, because we could probably talk about this a lot, but I've noticed that the NHL, I mean, this is really the year of just get in. Uh, These teams are upsetting number ones. Yep. And while that's great for fans and it's great for the entertainment value of the postseason, I think it really, more than any other league, the NHL regular season is meaningless. Uh, Baseball... You can argue that one or two games are meaningless, but the regular season is huge because only four teams make it. Uh, in the NHL, over half the teams make it. The President's Trophy winner almost Out. never wins. Yep. And like I said, we talk a lot about how to fix the NHL regular season or what to do to make the playoffs uh, or make the regular season mean anywhere close to what the playoffs do. But there's just there's there's clearly no advantage to finishing above other teams in the NHL anymore. And for the first time, if the Western Confer- if a Western Conference team wins the Stanley Cup this year, it's going to be the first time that team won the Cup. St. Louis, wow, yeah. LA, who are the uh, Nashville, Phoenix and, Nashville. and Phoenix. Yeah. None of those teams have ever won the Cup. So if the Cup's going out west this year, it's going to go to a first-timer. And Phoenix doesn't even have an owner. No, they don't. <laughs> They're owned by the league. So maybe Commissioner Batman can present the Stanley Cup trophy to, to himself. himself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that'd be interesting. All right, uh, my second thing. What a wild day of baseball on Saturday. Oh, and I want to say that I'm sorry. I know Cleveland Browns quarterback Joe Hayden was not the one that was elbowed by Meta World Peace. It was actually Oklahoma City player James Harden. Uh, sorry <laughs> about that mistake. Uh, I got the Browns and Joe Hayden on my mind. Uh, Philip Umber. You might not have heard of him before Saturday, but you've probably heard of him now. He pitched a perfect game on Saturday, and it was a really interesting thing because Miss Caster and I, left the house to go get some dinner and we're driving to dinner and he's in about the seventh inning of putting together the perfect game and everyone is bitching on Twitter about how Fox is making everybody watch this nine to nothing Yankees and Red Sox game instead of switching over to the no hitter. So we get back from dinner. We get to see the very, the last two outs of the uh, baseball game. Umber pitches the no-hitter. They switch to back to the Yankees game, and the first batter we see is Mark Teixeira, who hits a home run and makes the Yankee and Red Sox game 9-8. to Wow. So after the Hayden no-hitter, or the Umber no-hitter, 
we got to see the Yankees put back-to-back seven spots up on the Red Sox and come back from nine down to win the game 15-9. to Just a crazy, a crazy Saturday of Major League Baseball. But for as long as anyone, as long as Fox has been carrying Major League Baseball on Saturdays, there's been the complaint that if you're not in the market, if you're an out-of-market fan, you can't watch your team on Saturdays. I'm sure there was a lot of frustrated White Sox fans outside of Chicago who were really pissed off that they couldn't watch the 7th and 8th inning of Philip Umber's no-hitter. They ended up seeing the ninth, but Fox has got to take care of that. And another quick stat about it, the New York Mets and the Padres are the only two teams in Major League Baseball who have never had a no-hitter. Umber's a former Met. He's now the 7th Met to throw a no-hitter when he wasn't on the Mets anymore. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. All right, my second thing this week, I learned uh, CBS News has taught me that there's a craze, uh, a new sport taking over Europe, hmm. and that sport is chess boxing. Uh, it involves two boxers uh, and 32 pieces and 64 squares and one ring. And the way it works is there's 11 alternate rounds, three minutes of chess and three minutes of boxing. You either win by knocking your opponent out or by a checkmate, whichever comes first. Wow. So it's it just sounds awesome. They said, <laughs> uh, I think the contrast of seeing two people playing chess and then hitting each other, either of them in isolation wouldn't be comedic. But when they're alternated, it's pretty funny. <laughs> so they each take a turn on the chessboard, then they go into the ring? No, there's three minutes of chess. Three minutes of chess. So I imagine okay. they have those little punch clock speed things or whatever. But uh, they check out cbsnews.com, search for chess boxing. You know what's interesting is the stereotypical chess player isn't someone that you'd Absolutely see in a boxing not. ring. Nope. So I think this is a great opportunity for someone really tough to learn the game of chess just enough so he can survive three minutes yeah, and, and then, then just get in the ring and the just pound round. the guy out in the first round of the boxing. Well, dominate the sport. Yeah, CBS News is a little rundown between Andy the Rock Costello and Nikolai the Siberian Express Zahim. And uh, it's really interesting. Uh, night to E4, the announcer says, ooh, that hurt during the match. And then the time ran out, and uh, Costello knew his only choice was to come out swinging. Uh, but Zazi, I don't know how to say this guy's name. Zazihin was built to absorb a pounding and triumph in the end with a checkmate. So basically, <laughs> there was a there was a, a good chess move right as the time ran out. So they had to box. He knew he had to knock the guy out. Didn't. And then when he came back, he put him in checkmate and won the game. So very interesting uh, combination I, of I would have thought. And I would have thought after Scategories boxing failed <laughs> that they wouldn't have tried this again. But I guess you know. They just thought categories wasn't quite the right intellectual fit, so they went with chess, and it's a really interesting combination. Don. It sure is. All right, uh, my last thing. Uh, yeah, last night, uh, Monday, we're taping this on Tuesday, the New York Nets played their last game in New Jersey, and at a press conference, Governor Chris Christie, who we talked about when our buddy Dan Levy was on the show, Right. We debated about what kind of governor he is. He didn't like him. I think he's a great soundbite. So for Dan and for everyone else, here's Governor Chris Christie responding to a question that was asked to him if he was going to basically miss the Nets now that they're no longer in New Jersey. I'm not going to the Nets game tonight, and my message to the Nets is goodbye. Um, 
you know. You don't want to stay, we don't want you. I mean, seriously, I'm not going to be in the, the business of begging people to stay here. That's, a, that's one of the, the, the most beautiful arenas in America that they've had the chance to play in. It's in one of um, the country's most vibrant cities. And they want to leave here and go to Brooklyn? Good riddance. See you later. I mean, I don't have any you know, concern about it. And I think there'll be some other NBA teams um, who may be looking to relocate um, who say, you know, they look at that arena and they look at the, the, the base the fan base here in the, in the New Jersey, New York area, and say this is an opportunity for us perhaps to, you know, increase our fan base and to try something different. So, yeah, I got, you know, there will be no tears shed on my part tonight. Um, they go, they go. That decision was made a long time ago, and uh, they want to go to Brooklyn. Um, have at it. No problem from my perspective. <laughs> yes, sir. So that's Governor Chris Christie. Uh, maybe not a good governor, according to our buddy Dan Levy, but certainly a great soundbite, and I wanted to share that with you. Uh, the Nets are no longer the New Jersey Nets. They're going to be the Brooklyn Nets starting next year. Uh, they have a crazy Russian owner. I think Jay-Z is also a part of that owner, yeah. in some way. So the end of an era in basketball. Um, how sad. <laughs> yeah, it's never fun when a team leaves. but uh, doesn't sound he, like they're too broken he up ha- about No, nah, he handled it well. Uh, my last thing, very, very uh, broadly and generically, is the NFL draft is this week, and that's a lot of fun. We're going to touch on it during various parts of this podcast and over at the football nation podcast, you'll hear us talk about it quite a bit. So check that out. Uh, I look forward mostly to seeing every mock draft we've talked about or that you look online from the most professional to the most amateur all seem very, very same in the top six, seven, seven eight. Yeah, for sure. So, so I look forward to seeing why those are all going to be wrong because it just never, it never goes, it never plays out the way it seems like it's supposed to. So maybe there'll be some wild trades, or some teams that reach on a player, quote-unquote, or move back. Uh, I love the draft. I'll be live-blogging the draft at our blog. You can find the link on the sports, sports-casters.com. The link is the sportscasters at blogs, or .blogspot.com. Uh, Steve will be tweeting it. At Pro Player Insiders. At Pro Player Insiders. So we'll have fun with it. One way or another, uh, Mitch Hedberg has a joke about pancakes. He said, you have to be as a comedian, you have to be good. You have to be excited. You have to be good at the beginning. You have to be good at the end. You can't be like pancakes, where at first you're all excited, by the end you're sick of them. That's how I was about the draft last year, and I'm sure I'll feel that way three and a half hours into the draft <laughs> this year too. But at the beginning, I'll be excited and I'll be blogging, and it'll be ridiculous. So just about check it out. Just about every mock draft is luck one to Indianapolis, which we can confirm now. Yep. Uh, Griffin two to the Redskins. Khalil three. To the Vikings, Richardson. Richardson four, Claiborne five, to the Bucks, and then Justin Blackman six, and almost a consensus has been built now that Stephen Gilmore is going to go seven to Jacksonville. Then you can even go as far as saying that everyone says the Dolphins that the Dolphins Tannehill. will pick Tanhill. So, yeah, the- I, I've also seen Mark Barron pretty much consistently linked uh, to Dallas. Um, Don Terry Poe is a guy who's been all over the place. The uh, great not really sure where he's going to go. Um, quarterback could play a role. Is Brandon Whedon going to be picked in the first round or not? The local Bills reporter just uh, linked them to Mark Barron. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Because like like I said, everything we've seen for a good chunk of the time leading up to the draft has been very, very similar. So it's not often you see a draft that 
looks like it should be that accord. Like the the checklist is there, and that's how it's going to play out. So we'll see when the time comes tomorrow. Our buddy Richard, Thursday. our buddy Richard Deitch, uh has an article up at si.com and he kind of asks a question to Mayock and Kuiper and McShay, and he says, "How do you guys want to be evaluated? Is it mock drafts?" You know, what is it? And I thought McShay had a great question. He said, I hope you don't evaluate me based on my mock draft because one trade can happen in the beginning of the first round and it totally changes the mock draft, totally blows it out of the water. And I think this is the exact year that that's going to happen because the mock drafts are so similar this year. There's such a consensus, especially in the top seven picks, that I think either the Vikings or the Browns or the Jaguars are going to make a trade in that top seven, top ten, and everything's going to change. So even though it doesn't seem like there's a lot of drama going into the draft, I think there's going to be, and we're going to make sure that we're there to communicate with you about it. If you want to communicate back, Don will be blogging, as you said, at the sportscasters.blogspot.com. I'll be tweeting for PPI and also for the sportscasters at sports underscore casters. So we'll have it covered. And also... We might not talk a ton of draft from here on out in this podcast, but please do check out our Football Nation podcast at www.footballnation.com. And before this turns into a complete commercial, <laughs> let's take a break. We're going to come back with the Basketball Jones own task. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is a graduate of Ryerson University. In the past, he has worked as an editor at Yard Barker and a story editor at TSN, and has served as an on-air personality for Raptors TV. Today, he is the co-founder and co-host of the Basketball Jones podcast, blog, and TV show at the Score Television Network. The podcast is skymocast each Friday on the Grantland Podcast Network. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Toss Milis. How you doing today, Toss? I'm doing good. How's it going? Doing really good. Uh, looking forward to having you on the show today. Uh, we don't talk nearly as much NBA as we should, so we're looking forward to, to doing some of that, especially because kind of all hell broke loose a little bit on Sunday. I was uh, actually went out to pick up some dinner, and I, I flipped on the radio, and they had the... Um, the Lakers and the Oklahoma State game on, and uh, that fella Ron Artest, who changed his name to Meta World Peace before the season had thrown, kind of the elbow heard around the NBA world uh, and injured uh, Joe. Uh, is it Hay- Hayden? Is that Harden? J- uh, James Harden injured James Harden from the uh, from the Oklahoma State. So, I guess my first question for you is kind of what is going to be the fallout from this what is going to happen to metal world peace and uh is harden going to be uh ready for the playoffs and uh if not what kind of blow is that to oklahoma city first i can tell uh i can tell you don't talk a lot nba because you call oklahoma city oklahoma state on and off i mean he intermixed them but uh, that happened <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding <laughs> i'm just kidding around uh um james harden uh man i felt obviously terrible for him i actually i watched it and I played it back uh, for my wife because I think 
when it comes to the NBA, they care so much about their image since the Malice in the Palace 2004, which obviously involved right. Ron Hartnest. They, they care so much about how that, how the casual fan perceives. Uh, you know, my wife who watches some basketball, but, you know, doesn't really care for it, uh, just saw it and said, oh, what is he doing? He just lost his brain there for a second. And, right. and Ron's, Ron's really... Uh, come a long ways. Um, you know, he's he's been uh, an advocate for for people uh, for uh, dealing with psychologists and having their own uh, psychotherapy sessions, and and he's actually come a long way. And he didn't necessarily toss it all out the window with this incident, but I think his brain just shut off. I think he really didn't know what he was doing, um, and I'm not making an excuse for him. Um, but he, I think he, you know the way it, it it seemed like like my wife perceived it. It, it just seemed terrible, and the NBA can't have an image of a player's brain rattling around, you know, being uh, broadcast for the next few weeks and, and not punish their players. So uh, what would normally get like a three-game suspension at the most is probably going to get 10 in Ron's case because of his reputation, because of uh, that it wasn't a basketball play whatsoever. And I think, I think like, you know, if you're a basketball guy and you throw one down and somebody sort of gets on top of you, you kind of... You kind of do that, get off me, kind of thing, and, and that sort of makes sense. But this, this wasn't even that. It was, it was ten times beyond that. It just was a, uh, and I something that Ron really had no idea what he was doing. I don't think the intent was bad. I think his brain just shut off entirely, and uh, you know he just lost himself in the moment there for a second. And again, no excuse. I think he's got to get ten games, and uh, yeah, the lifetime ban thing makes no sense to me. I, I don't think he's a terrible guy, and I really don't think he meant it. And he's done a lot of work trying to to get back, uh, you know, to be you know to dealing with all those issues he had as a as a child growing up in uh, in a rough neighborhood, and, and he's been in a, in a an advocate for it. And that's Ron, and 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 I'm you know proud of him that he came this far. So. The ban, I think, makes no sense. But 10 games is reasonable to me. You know, I'm going to just call him the Thunder from here on in so I don't make any more mistakes with Oklahoma City and State. <laughs> but, uh, the... you're, a college, you're a college guy, I assume. <laughs> well, you know, we've been doing so much on the draft these last couple days, you know, and I've been writing about Justin Blackman in Oklahoma State. So I just have Oklahoma State football on the brain and Brandon Whedon and things like that. So that's why I screwed it up. But the well, thunder... uh, going back, if you flip the script here, I mean, I couldn't, I don't know, a, a Hoosier from a, I don't know, a Wildcat or whatever happens there <laughs> in the in the college college game there. So I would I would screw up way more than than that. That's for sure. Well, thanks for being kind. Uh, <laughs> the Thunder uh, have been one of the the best teams in the league all year. Uh, they've played great basketball all season. Um, obviously, they have Durant. Durant's a stud. But the Spurs, the Spurs are the team that surprised me. I look at the standings every day. I try to keep up as best as I can. And the Spurs are 48-16, and 16 and, and it looks like they're going to be the one seed in the West. How have the Spurs been able to do it with what a lot of people perceive is an older lineup in a season where old lineups are supposed to struggle because of the back-to-back-to-back games and the way the 66 games have been condensed in such a small period of time? Yeah, the Spurs have locked up uh, the number one seed in the West, and and they did the same last year. Um, it's because they have an incredible, incredible coach that only allows his players to go as far as their abilities take them. And you know, you've got a a guy in uh, Danny Green who 
I don't know if you know him from his college days, yep. but um, you know he's only been in the year or in the league a couple of years. He played for the Cavs. He was uh, not even a role player. He was a very you know end of the bench type guy. He's come into San Antonio, become you know one of their defensive stoppers, uh, and hits the corner three and is athletic as hell. But he's not allowed to do much more than that um, because those are his abilities and that's his skill set. So he gets put into that role. You got a Kawhi Leonard coming out of school and, and being another defensive wing who's. Uh, phenomenal at that. He's brought along Thiago Splitter very well, and these are guys, you know, the average NBA fan would know. But Greg Popovich is getting the most out of these guys, and um, you know, the, I think uh, the biggest thing with them is they're small. Uh, and then you insert, you know, uh, at the trade deadline, you insert a, a Boris Diaw, who's nothing but small. You know, he's he's quite the girthy fellow. Um, so that that's helped in that regard. You know, when they go up against. Maybe the Utah Jazz in the first round series, but that'll be decided as we record this Tuesday night. That'll be decided tonight, most likely. They right. may face the Jazz, who are a big team. Uh, they may play Dio against them. It's just, it's phenomenal what Popovich has done with that team. And, and it, all the kudos has to go to him. They've been a little healthier. I mean, Tony Parker's had an MVP type season. Tim Duncan is playing, you know, like it's, uh, you know, 2007 again. Like he's playing very, very well. And, uh, uh, Man Ginobili looks great right now, even though he's been injured this season. So he just he just gets the most out of his players, and they got bounced by the Grizzlies last year as as the one seed uh, when the Grizzlies were the eight seed because yeah they were a little injured, but the Grizzlies just beat them up a little bit inside with Gasol, Randolph, and Darrell Arthur. This year, Thiago Splitter's a little bigger, um, you know, playing a more of a bigger role. I don't think he's necessarily grown; he's not necessarily bigger, but um, he, he'll play bigger, you know, alongside Timmy and. Uh, you know, they have Boris Dia, which will help. So I think they've alleviated that problem and they're healthy. So, uh, I think they're better than they were last year going into the playoffs. And, uh, Popovich, I, I believe is going to win coach of the year because of, uh, what he's done with all these parts that we all wrote off, including myself. I mean, we thought they'd be like a middle of the road team, but, uh, they're just, they just have so many, they, they just brought all the skills these guys have to the forefront. And, you know, they, they know Danny Greeno, you're athletic as hell. You can shoot the three ball a little bit. You're going to be a wing defender. Uh, we're just going to focus on that, and that's all you're going to do, and he's good at it. And uh, now they have incredible depth against Steven Jackson. So uh, they are, I think they're the team to beat going to the Western Conference playoff wow. picture, even though you mentioned Oklahoma City and how good they are. You know, I got a giggle uh some point in the season when Duncan was a scratch, and the reason that they put was old age. But it seems like what they've been doing is just trying to manage Duncan so they can get the most out of him this time of the year. Have they really put themselves in a position where, like you said, they were a little banged up last year and got outmuscled by Memphis? Are they stronger and, and more prepared for the playoff run this year? I think it's more uh, a mental thing than a physical thing. I mean, it, it obviously helps, like, the legs for sure with a Timmy or a Tony Parker who who he would sit at any time or manage nobly as well, even though, you know, those two guys aren't close to, to Timmy's age or aren't as old as Timmy, I should say. But uh, I think it's mental when, when their coach says, hey, guys, sit down, just sit down again. Because when it comes to the playoffs, I mean, obviously, you know, you want your legs as much as possible, but I think these guys can can fight through it, uh, you know, mentally. And there's no back-to-backs in the playoffs. Uh, you have a night off um, between each game, so I, I think it's more mental. Like these guys know that their coach has their back, and I love that Greg Pop, which we call him the G on our show, uh, not just because he's got two at the end of his name. But because he says, I don't care. You know, we have an 11-game win streak, as they did earlier on in the season against Portland. He says, I don't care. I'm sitting my big three. 
because I want them to get rest. And, um, you know, I guess the fact that playing them on a back-to-back, uh, there is a likely, more likelihood of an injury. I guess that's part of it as well, why he sits them. Um, so he doesn't want to play them back-to-backs. But uh, when it comes down to it, I think, you know, whether or not they play two extra games in the season, I don't think will really matter that much. But um, either way, it, it won't hurt. And uh, I think the guys, yeah, obviously you mentioned it, they're way, they're way healthier. I mean, Manu looks incredible, and people forget, I mean, he can be the difference maker. You got a plan for Tim. You got a plan for Tony. Managing you know, only can easily be the best player on the floor, and you know, uh, arguably could have won a Finals MVP in '05 when they won it. Uh, so, you know, they're they're stacked, and they are definitely better than last year. I want to ask you about the Mavs. You know, they're going to either be the sixth or the seventh seed, which means they're going to have to either play Oklahoma City or the Lakers in the first round. Um, they've had a really strange season. A lot of ups and downs. They kind of just walked away from Lamar Odom, who was a disaster uh, there from the beginning. Do you give them any chance to repeat or defend their their title? And if if they can get to that, you know, what's going to have to go right for them in a season where it seems like so much has gone wrong? Well, I think they're in a better boat now. Jason Kidd is back. Um, there's another old guy that, you know, we have to worry about uh, in terms of his health. Jason Kidd's back, and, and he gives him some stability if he can drill – a couple threes a game, uh, that'll help a lot. Um, but at the same time, they're not the same defensively without Chandler. I know that's the, the easy excuse, but they're just, they just don't move the same. Um, and they're, you know, they're going to go to a zone quite often because they're, you know, they're fairly old. They don't have the legs. They don't have great defenders anymore. So like they did last year, you know, with Chandler, they're going to go to the zone and, and Brandon Wright or Jan Nahimi aren't necessarily the answer back there so I think they're going to struggle a little bit there and uh, they just don't I mean I think they're starting to move the ball a little bit more on offense which is their MO and how they won last year uh, and Dirk is going to win them a couple games in the playoffs no doubt about it I mean he looks great he just looks like he can scorch a team for 20 in the fourth quarter like he has been recently um, but at the same time I don't know it, they just don't have it all the time it looks like they're fighting at the end of games just to sort of stay close to teams that they should be beating uh, if they are a championship threat so uh, you know, I think you know Rick Carlisle, the head coach, said it best. He said, you know, it's it's extremely, extremely, extremely tough to repeat in this league. And you know, when they were getting their best, the best effort of other teams coming at them, uh, it, it's it's tough, especially when they they're just not as good. They're not as good as they were last year uh, on both ends of the floor. It feels like, um, and and Tyson Chandler's offense is going to be missed as well. You got the. Jason Kidd and Brandon Haywood running the pick and roll instead of Chandler, who's perfect at, at going to the rim and throwing down those alley-oops. So they don't look as good on either end, and it seems like they're going to struggle to win a playoff series. You know, God bless the people who work at the Staples Center because starting next week with the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Kings uh, in the playoffs, it's going to be a crazy place to be. Um, let's talk about the Clippers for a second. I'm a huge Oklahoma athletics fan. So I love Blake Griffin. You know, he's probably the best basketball player since Mookie Blaylock to come from Oklahoma. And uh, I watch him all the time, and I love the way he dunks the ball, and um, he's really tough and, and cool. But he does. He's, it does, seems like his offensive game isn't quite developed the way I would have hoped at this point in his NBA career. Talk a little bit about Blake and uh, what kind of damage you think the Clippers can do in the playoffs. Yeah, we talk about Blake a lot on, on our show um, because he, he is sort of 
you know, he hasn't come along yet, but he's a second-year player. I mean, it's it's so easy to forget that that he was a phenomenal rookie last year. And um, I thought coming into this year, there was all the talk, and he he told Bill Simmons that uh, he was working on the three ball last year, or I'm sorry, during the off season. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, this this kid could be, you know, could lock up his Hall of Fame induction speech uh, if he were to throw in a three ball into that repertoire. He doesn't have that yet. He doesn't have post moves yet, but he's still a 20-point scorer. That's how good he is. Uh, and I think he, he just needs to develop that jump shot. It really hasn't improved much from last year. Um, he kind of he kind of releases it on the descent, which is kind of odd watching that. Um, so he's got he's got to work on the mechanics there. But I think it'll come along. We're talking about a second-year player, and it's it's going to be phenomenal when he does start to put at least one of those facets together, whether it's the, you know, the 16, 18 foot jump shot on a regular a la Carl Malone or the post moves. But I don't think the post moves will come uh, as fast as the jump shot because it, it hurts him. The length hurts him in the NBA, although he's, you know, fast as hell. So, uh, you know, he's got some moves down there, but uh, you know, I think, I think it's okay that he's at this level. Um, at the same time, you know, I worry about their offense a little bit. Um, you know, they've come along together uh, great uh, the last few weeks because they seem to have an energy. They seem to just be on their toes a little bit, and Chris Paul is always going to allow them to have a decent offense. But uh, I don't know. I just don't see where the rest of it comes from. You know, Chris Paul is going to win them a few games. Blake's going to help out, but I think it's going to be up to their wings. Uh, those are going to be the X factors. Your Randy Foy, Karam Butler, Nick Young. Those guys are going to have to hit some shots because DeAndre Jordan, Kenyon Martin, the, the other bigs, you can't depend on them. Uh, Blake doesn't have the most dependable game. So I think it's going to come down to the wings because teams are just going to allow, uh, you know, get the, get the ball out of Chris Paul's hands. And uh, as good as he is, I think the defenses will be better for him or against him in the playoffs than they have been in the regular season. Uh, so he'll definitely win them games. But uh, I'm a little worried about their offense. But, again, their defense has picked up greatly. So it doesn't seem like they'll be, ever be out of games. And when you've got Chris Paul, in my opinion, the best closer, if he's got the ball in his hands, he'll either make the, uh, the right shot because he can get anywhere on the floor or the right pass. So, uh, you know, they're going to come down to the wire with a lot of teams. But uh, I think they can, they can be beaten. Before we move on to the East, I just want to ask you, is there a team that's going to be on the outside looking in at the Western Conference playoffs that's kind of a disappointment to you that you thought really should have been a playoff team this year? Or in the end, do you think the eight teams that end up in the playoffs are the eight teams that you maybe would have predicted to be in the playoffs before we started the season? Well, I mean, uh, I, you know, the first few weeks in, I, after watching Portland get out to that 7-2 and two start, uh, they look great, and we on our show predicted uh, that they'd still be in the playoff picture. You know, they'd be a, at least a middle-of-the-pack team in the playoffs. So it was disappointing seeing that. Um, it's just the way, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge couldn't lead his team. Their guard play stunk. Uh, they shouldn't have traded away Andre Miller. Um, so that was a disappointment. You know, looking at the rest of the playoff picture, I mean, it was disappointing that Ricky Rubio went out because the Timberwolves right. could easily been in this race for the eighth and final playoff spot. Um, but those are two teams that I wouldn't ex- have expected to be in the playoff picture before the season. So I don't think I'm uh, really disappointed that anyone, you know, has fallen off from if I was looking at it from before the, the season started because. Now the Rockets were going to be one of those grinded out teams. They're, you know, they just missed out. And, and other than that, I mean, it was a little disappointing that Eric Gordon was, was hurt for the New Orleans Hornets because I love Eric Gordon. Uh, and I, you know, as, as bad a record as the Hornets had, they played their ass off every night. And it was great to watch them. Monty Williams did a great job with that team. 
So uh, as it is, no, I'm not really that disappointed. I mean, as a Canadian here, uh, you know, going into tonight, uh, Steve Nash, his, his playoff hopes kind of depend on tonight's game against the Jazz. Uh, I don't necessarily care if Steve Nash gets in, to be honest, and that's weird coming from a Canadian guy who loves him, uh, because I think the Suns will just get killed in the first round anyways, and I think the Jazz will actually put up a better fight against the Spurs. Um, so... That's where we stand. I think we're uh, we're. I'm good with the eight teams that made it there, and all these guys, all these teams are so deserving. But uh, the Rubio injury kind of pains me a little bit because he was a great story. You know, when I look at the Western Conference, there seems like there's a bunch of teams in there that I could see coming out of the Western Conference. When I look at the Eastern Conference, I really just can't get past Chicago and Miami. Is there a team in the East that I'm overlooking that can challenge and ultimately represent the Eastern Conference in the NBA Finals? other than Chicago and Miami? Yeah, it's a good call by you. I mean, I think uh, that's that's the consensus that there's only the two. I, I think I'll give two teams a little bit of hope. I think the Celtics, uh, they, they can't, they can't score from the inside. They've got nobody, so they they got to rely on jump shots. They've got to get hot, and Rajon Rondo has got to take it to the rim a little bit more um, because they can't just rely on jump shots on their offense to get them by, but they've got the defense to stay with anybody, and they showed they can beat the Heat a couple weeks ago. Um, so I, I think they'll give the Heat or Bulls a run. No no, uh, you know, no questions asked. So because if you've got defense that's going to keep you in a game, uh, then it's up to your offense, and I'm a little worried about their offense, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, they've, got, they've got a team that'll fight and scrap and will be in every game, but I, I do worry about their offense a little bit. Uh, and, and the Indiana Pacers, I'm going to give a little bit of kudos too, and I think can be in games. Danny Granger is sort of underrated as a as a clutch player. You know, the thing with the Pacers in the three seed, uh, as they stand right now, uh, has been they don't have a guy at the end of games who can score. Well, Granger has been that guy a lot of the time, not all the time, but he has been pretty efficient when uh, when it comes to clutch stats. And uh, I really like David West. You know, he is um, obviously getting on in his career and coming out to knee injuries, not the same player. But he had some clutch shots when he was a member of the Horn, and that didn't necessarily go far, only a second-round uh, team uh, ever. I think that was back in 2010. But uh, I think those two guys can carry that Pacers team, and the Pacers and the Celtics are both that will never really be out of games because they fight so hard, and, and they really think that they can knock off these teams, and that's part of the battle. They've got to be you know, mentally believe they can beat the Bulls or Heat. And so I'm going to give those two teams a chance uh, a possibility of knocking off the big two in the East. You know, you mentioned Indiana, and they're going to have to play Orlando in the first round, it seems like. And Orlando's had an absolutely bizarre season with all they went through with Dwight Howard, and, and now finally they're just going to be able to move on without him. And I was reading Bill Simmons' mailbag the other day, and he kind of made a case that Orlando might be a better team without having Howard in the lineup. Is that crazy talk, or do you think that they might be more prepared here to make a run and take a shot at a kind of an unproven Indiana team uh, without Howard and all the distractions that he brought this season? I love the, I love the uh, Kool-Aid that Billy's drinking because <laughs> I, uh, I, don't, I don't see that happening. I mean, I understand the idea that, hey, they're going to play free and, 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 and be better, but they don't, have, they don't have the talent. They don't. Uh, they just don't have guys they can depend on whatsoever. Uh, they, they don't have uh, on either end. They're they're worse off, and uh, I don't see you know the, the uh, you know the other side of it being that they don't have to play with all this burden. I don't see uh, their talent making up 
you know, for that. And there's there's just no chance. There's no balance there. There's no way. I, I just I don't see it happening. There's, there's no fight in that team, and they've shown it even this past week when Dwight's been out. Uh, it was short lived. They had a little bit of a high. Hey, we're we're feeling good. We don't have all these burdens. Kind of high play after uh, Dwight decided that he was uh, going to have surgery and end the season, but. Uh, um, no, I don't give them a shot whatsoever. They're just not good enough, and they don't have leaders, and they didn't have a leader when Dwight was there, and I understand that you know, it, it will be a little bit of a nicer atmosphere in the uh, Orlando locker room now without Dwight being around, but unfortunately, they don't have the horses to carry it. There's nobody to depend on in that lineup. If, as sports fans, we get what we want in the East, and that is what would be a great conference final between Miami and Chicago, how do you handicap that series? Ooh, that's a tough one, and it really stinks um, that Derrick Rose has been in and out of the lineup recently because uh, he needs to be great um, to to get by uh, this Miami Heat team because they showed the last matchup there last week where there was no Derrick Rose. Miami Heat's defense is picking up. They're a very good defensive team, especially um, when it comes to the perimeter. Um, they do give up a lot of three balls. Uh, they're very bad at the three ball percentage. Um, so can the, uh, the Bulls hurt them in that regard? If that's, if, uh, if, if that's the case going into the final, if, if, I'm sorry, if the Bulls kind of get hot from the outside, that could be the, uh, the factor there, the overcoming factor for the Chicago Bulls. Um, but I, I still think that the Heat, have a little too much. They've got a Derrick Rose stopper and LeBron James when LeBron when Derrick Rose gets healthy. Um, but I just feel like that might be an excuse that you know we're all we all have in the back of our minds that Derrick Rose isn't necessarily healthy right now. So how the hell are they going to get past the uh, the Miami Heat? And he's got to get into a bit of a groove before they face the Miami Heat uh, if they're going to beat them. And, and if they get their three ball shooting uh, going, it's you know, there's a chance that they can beat them, but it's just the strengths versus the strengths in that relation or in that uh, matchup are all on the perimeter. And when you've got LeBron and Wade versus Derrick Rose and three point shooting, uh, I think the uh, the Heat win out because they don't have a guy who can take over the Bulls uh, in any other position. And Luol Dang helps. Carlos Boozer doesn't help quite often, and the other guys are obviously capable. But if you got a Rip Hamilton or a Kyle Korver that can get hot. That could turn the series, but Rose obviously just needs some help. Um, but again, uh, you know the the Heat's strength is their perimeter as well. So I don't know. I, I see I see the Heat, you know, getting the uh, the benefit of the doubt in that matchup. And just because at the end of games, I mean, what's going to happen? You know, the, I think they stop Rose a little bit, and their guys excel. So right. I go Heat. You know, uh, it's kind of a last thing here. Um, the MVP award is is always really heavily debated in the NBA, and I've heard Bryant, I've heard James, I've heard even some people who maybe don't think Love can win it, but are going to definitely include him on their ballot. Who do you think's the MVP of the league this year? Well, you know, it all starts with uh, what your definition is, right? So, right. Is, it, is it the most valuable player to his team, or is it the most outstanding player, as we call it here in the Canadian Football League? I can't believe I just talked about the Canadian <laughs> Football League. But, but I actually like how the Canadian Football League has a most outstanding player award. Like, who is the best player? Forget about the most valuable player. And this year, the most outstanding player, the player I want to give it to because he's the best player in the league, is LeBron James. Uh, I love how he went into the offseason last year and worked on his game. I think he 
he did actually, uh, you know, take it to heart that people hated him and he wanted to get better at his game. So just talking about winning championships, he went and did it. He was on more efficient shooting the ball within the arc, outside the arc, uh, rebounding the basketball. Um, and, uh, he, his assists were obviously phenomenal. So, uh, overall, he's been the best player and, and, and the fact he can be your lockdown defender at the end of games. He doesn't necessarily have to do it the entire game because uh, they don't want to waste all of his energy. But, you know, over Kobe, Durant, and Kevin Love, he's by far the best one-on-one defender. You know, Kobe's days as a great one-on-one defender are done. Uh, LeBron James is, is that guy. And, and that might not factor into people's voting, but it should because, you know, they win the, the Eastern Conference playoff series against the Bulls because he's thought Derrick Rose. Uh, I know that's last year, but it shows. You know, a lot of times he played Durant the other week uh, extremely well and caused Durant to, to miss a lot of his final shots. So uh, Durant's a great choice. Chris Paul is also a great choice um, because what he's done there, uh, carrying that team a lot of the time. Right. But uh, LeBron, just overall, the most efficient player and, and uh, just fantastic to watch. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the whole fourth quarter uh, isn't clutch argument. Uh, you know, people watch what they care to watch. And there has been some big stages where he's, he's missed shots. But there's, there's been a ton of games where he's carried his team down the stretch. And, and the fact that whatever they are without Dwayne Wade this year, something ridiculous, like, you know, 13-1 and one or 14-1, and one, it proves how great he is. Um, and uh, he's just had the best season, numbers-wise, advanced stats-wise, if you look at it like that, defensively. So he's the king. He's the best. Well, real quick follow-up about LeBron. You know, we've, on this podcast, we've loved to hate him over the years, but I kind of feel... I kind of feel myself softening to him a bit. I was really proud of the way he stood up for what he believed in and the Trevon Martin thing with the hoodie picture that he seemed to organize. Lee Jenkins told us a story about how they ran into some troops on a runway and they wanted to take some pictures and everyone was saying no and LeBron kind of stepped up, made sure the pictures got taken. It seems like he's just kind of changed his attitude and I feel like maybe – too much of me and being from Buffalo and feeling from Cleveland have, has kind of criticized him for that one moment, that one poor moment in the decision. Am I right to kind of feel like myself and maybe the country in general is kind of not hating on Miami and James as much this year and maybe rooting for them a little bit? They haven't done anything stupid in a while. So uh, I think that's fair to say that uh, you and everybody else, and myself included, have, have softened to him. And we have somebody else to hate in Dwight Howard and all the stupid things right. he's done. So, so I think it's uh, we can turn our attention to him, and he's become you know the villain with uh, the indecision that was this season, where he couldn't decide what he wanted to do, uh, and you know putting his team through all that turmoil. So uh, yeah, you know, Braun, you know, uh, made a mistake last year, and, and everybody. Everybody who knows him and is close to him just says that. You know, he's a good guy who made some stupid mistakes, and the casual fan definitely hates him. But at the same time, like you mentioned, all those uh, those instances there where, you know, he is a decent guy, and uh, really it's just that there's so much of a spotlight on him, and, and big deal. You know, he's gone through eight NBA seasons, and he hasn't won the title. You know, he's taken uh, a couple teams to the finals, and uh, he's gotten really, really close. And he's going to pull one out, and as soon as he pulls one out, everybody's just going to say, "Oh, you know, this guy's all right." Because yeah. the, the simple fact is, we like winners as fans. And yeah, he came out and said, "Yeah, we're going to win not five, not six, not seven titles, 
But uh, the fact is, he's the best player on the planet. I don't think he's going to let his his team lose this coming off season. And as soon as he just has one championship under his belt, uh, I feel like uh, we'll we'll all love him. And I don't think he's going to make those mistakes again. So I think uh, I think we'll love him for uh, for the rest of his career, most likely. All right, the podcast is called The Basketball Jones. There's a blog, TV show, the Score Television Network. You can also find it on Fridays at Grantland. Uh, Twitter at T-A-S-M-E-L-A-S. Anything else you want to plug before we let you go? No, that was a hell of a plug right there. Yeah, I think you uh, you covered it all. I mean, we're going to have fun uh, during the NBA playoffs. Absolutely. And, uh, at our, you know, we do our daily show Monday through Friday at thescore.com slash tbj, uh, daily podcast. And, uh, yeah, Friday show is also on our website, but also on Grantland. So you want NBA playoffs, uh, come join us. And if you want to talk NBA playoffs, have me on. Uh, I'll definitely uh, jump on during the postseason. Awesome. We definitely will take you up on that. Thank you so much for doing it. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay, man. You All too. right, man. Bye. I was just joking with Don that Tass is quickly becoming the Sinbad of the sportscasters. We don't want to butcher his last name, so he's simply Tass. Okay, I want to thank him for being on the show. We're definitely going to take him up on his offer and have him on again sometime during the NBA playoffs. Book club update. Biggest one we've ever had right now. Uh, first things first, we had two books for the month of, month of April. We had Mark Titus's Don't Put Me in Coach, my incredible NCAA journey from the end of the bench to the end of the bench. Mark is going to join us in just a couple minutes to talk about that book. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Second book for this month, My Year's Coaching Tiger Woods, The Big Miss by Hank Haney. Hank is supposedly going to join us next week. Uh, the publisher says Hank's going to be on. I haven't heard from Hank yet, but we'll take their word for it. Hank will be on next week to talk about the big miss. All right, the month of May. This is going to be the best month in the history of the book club, and here's why. Because some really badass people have books out, and they've agreed to come on to the podcast and talk to us about them. First things first, the first book that we're going to feature is Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. Uh, Frank DeFord is truly one of the greats in this business. We're going to talk with Alex Belt about him and his legacy later on in the program. And I cannot be more pleased to announce that our podcast, the week of May 8th, is going to feature an interview with Frank DeFord about his book, Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer. The bad news is, if you can call it bad news, the book comes out on May 8th. Okay. So just like with the guys from Game Over... The day that we have Frank on is going to be the day that the, the book comes out. So you're not going to be able to read the book ahead of time before we do the interview. But that doesn't mean that all month I'm going to be reminding you to pick up the book and read the book. And it's really cool. We got a copy in the mail today. It looks beautiful. It's got a picture of Frank. Um, and it's not your regular memoir because he has had so many incredible experiences. And the first part of the book is really about him covering the NBA before the NBA was a sport that anyone cared about. Hmm. And it evolves from there. It goes on to talk about his work at Sports Illustrated, his work at the Nat- uh, the National, when that uh, the National Sports uh, newspaper that was around for a little while. And uh, then it goes on to talk about his TV work at HBO Real Sports. It's really a great memoir, and I can't wait 
to have Frank DeFord on the show. Keep now, in mind, though, you said the book won't be out until the day we interview him. Sometimes that isn't the case, though. Once in a while, you right, will see a you book can get books. hit the shelf. So They're not like uh, video DVDs games or, or movies. Right. right. So keep an eye out for it. Good point. And you know what's a great example of that is the paperback version of ESPN, the ESPN book. Have, those, right. those guys have all the fun. I remember we had interviewed – uh, James Andrew Miller, and I was the one who told him that I saw his book on the shelves yeah. before it had been out. Second book for May, and it's a similar situation. doesn't come out until – oh, it actually comes out May 8th as well. <laughs> so Big day. The book is John Smoltz, Starting and Closing. And what else to say? John Smoltz is going to be on the podcast. That's I'm awesome. a huge Braves fan. Uh, from the 90s, not as big of a fan anymore as I used to be, more just like kind of a general baseball fan now. But when I was younger, the Braves were the only team on TV. It was before the extra innings package and all the regional sports network. So I watched the Braves every day all summer. And I watched Greg Maddox and John Smoltz and Tom Glavin pitch. And this is kind of a dream come true. And we're going to have John on uh, the second week of May. So you're going to have a chance to kind of spend a week or so with this book, assuming that it doesn't hit shelves until they say it's going to. Uh, not like Don said, not necessarily always the case, but John Smoltz starting and closing his memoir is going to be the second book that we're going to feature in May. And we're going to have John on the second week of May. That'd be interesting because with any writer, these guys are great at putting their words down on paper and getting their ideas across there. But sometimes when you get them on to interview them, maybe it's just not their thing. And But you know with him and his broadcast, like he's just a really well-spoken guy. So I I look forward to that. That should be really good. All right. Now, this next book is kind of going to be the official book club book of the month for May because two reasons. One, it's out already. You can go buy it for sure at bookstores. It came out – or actually it comes out today. Okay. You know, today is the release day. Shit comes out on Tuesday, and today is the day. So it's officially in stores. And it's called uh, Like Any Normal Day, and it's by Mark Cram Jr., whose dad was one of Mark Cram Sr., was one of the all time great sports writers at SI in DeFord's era. DeFord and Cram were like the two main guys at SI. And we're going to get into more of this with Alex Belf later in the show. It's going to kind of set all this up. But the reason we got hooked up with this book, like any normal day, two reasons. One, I read about it last week in Sports Illustrated and thought it would be a real interesting book to cover. And two, the, the person who wrote that article was Belth, and I got in touch with him. He got me in touch with Mark. And Mark is going to give us some time to read the book, and he's going to be on the May 29th episode of the show. So this is going to be the book that we kind of spend the – month reading so to say and i do have a copy of it to give away i'm not going to give it away this week we'll give it away on next week's show uh but we do have a copy it's called like any normal day by mark cram jr i'm really excited to get into this with everybody um it's a really interesting book only kind of about sports you know it's one of those that has a much deeper deeper story but just to recap all of that like Any Normal Day by Mark Cram Jr. comes out today in bookstore. It's going to be the book club book of the month for May. We're going to have him on the show on May 29th. John Smoltz, starting and closing. Uh, Don Yeager is the ghostwriter on that one. John's going to be on the show on May 15th to talk about the book. We're thrilled. Can't wait for that. Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. Frank's going to be on the show May 8th 
That's the day the book comes out and Smoltz's book as well. So we look forward to those three books for May. We're going to take a break in a second. We're going to talk to Titus about his book, which we read. And then next week, we should have Haney on the show to talk about The Big Miss. Got it? Got it. All right. We'll be right back with Mark Titus. Our next guest is from Brownsburg, Indiana, and is a graduate of The Ohio State University. At Ohio State, he worked for, walked onto the basketball team, and was a member of the team's Final Four squad that featured Greg Oden. In October of 2008, he started a blog about his basketball-related experiences called Club Trillion. In 2010, he was drafted by the Harlem Globetrotters. He has worked as a contributing writer for ESPN Insider on men's college basketball, and in 2011, he began contributing material for ESPN's new site, Grantland.com. In March, he released his first book, Don't Put Me In, Coach, My Incredible Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented and funny Mark Titus. How you doing today, Mark? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Um, we're excited to have you. You know, we, we love the book club. The readers love the book club. Uh, and your book kind of fit in perfect because it's the first one we've done. You know, sometimes I wonder this about sports books. Sometimes they can just be really serious, you know, and I think we really had fun with this one because it was fun to read. You know, sports are supposed to be fun and the book itself was fun. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of jokes in there and that's something I want to ask you about too, but how important was it for you to just make sure that this book was fun because you know, if you think back to when we first started reading, you know, most of us, we didn't want to read books because it just wasn't that fun. You know, we'd rather play yeah. sports or something, you know, and and I think, you know, as I got older and, and I started to read a little bit more, you know, the most important thing, obviously, like I said, was fun. So how important was that to you to make sure the book itself was fun? Well, the book, it was important to me to make it fun because, I mean, that kind of was my mentality at Ohio State, um, and that's where I got the title from for the book, Don't Put Me In, Coach. It kind of uh, um, it signifies that, like, I don't need to go to the game to enjoy my experience. I'm just going to have fun uh, doing other things behind the scenes. Um, you know, I'm not here to get playing time. I'm here to have a blast. And, you know, I knew early on at Ohio State that I wasn't going to play professionally, not just the NBA. I mean, I could probably, have, if I really wanted to, there's so many leagues uh, all over the world i'm sure i could have you know played for like ten thousand dollars and some peanuts and some uh, south american country professionally if i really wanted to um but i but I, I knew early on that i didn't want to play professionally no matter what uh so i knew that 2010 was going to be the end of my basketball career and basketball had been a huge part of my life obviously my entire life so i kind of i kind of saw it at the end of the mirror and i just wanted to have as much fun as possible because I knew I'd never get to experience anything like this again. And so um, that was my attitude at Ohio State. And so when I wanted to write the book, you know, I wanted that attitude to shine through. And uh, I, I, it seems like I, I did a good job at that because, yeah, a lot of, I think a lot of people are having fun reading it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we talk a lot on this show about my partner and I about how funny are we going to try to be? You know, how much, 
how straight are we going to be? Are we going to play? Am I going to play the straight man? You're going to play the funny man. You know, things like that. And we've realized that it's hard to be funny. You know, and I give you a lot of credit. Yeah. I give you a lot of credit when you when you wrote this book, and it's one thing I've been saying to the listeners because you throw out a million jokes, and you know, a, a lot of them are funny. Some of them aren't. You know, but it really reminds me of like the best done sitcoms in the sense that they're not afraid to just throw jokes out. And since humor yeah. humor translates different with everybody, you know, a joke that I might not have laughed at in the book, 10 other people might have. You want to talk a little bit about yeah. how, how hard it is to be funny and, you know, like the, the approach to put as many books in, jokes in the book as you did. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, like, it's, I don't want to say that it's not hard for me because that makes me sound, like, arrogant, like it, like, comes natural to me. But it's kind of, like, just been, I kind of just wrote it in my tone and my voice. Um, I don't know. I think it's funny that you say that because I'm working on something for Grantland right now that's more of a serious thing, and I'm really struggling with it because I, I don't know how to write serious stuff, you know. So uh, I think that's just my style is to be funny. I've always, like, kind of been the goofy guy, the, the class clown, if you will, uh, my entire life. Uh, I enjoy making people laugh, and like you said, some jokes that people don't like, uh, other people do like, and that, that's been that's been really rewarding for me um, since the book has come out. I'll have uh, groups of people come up and tell me, uh, they'll be like, my favorite joke was this, and I'm like, really? That was your favorite? That was like the worst joke in the book. And then other people will say, you know, my favorite joke was this, and it's the same sort of thing. It's like, wow, that was the last guy I talked to you said that was his least favorite, and now this is your favorite. So um, I don't know. It is kind of like a... The, I didn't really, like, plan it out as, like, wow. Or I wasn't, like, writing it and said, dang, we don't have a joke. We haven't had a joke in, like, a page and a half. I need to put a joke in here. That's not really my attitude. It was just kind of like I was writing a story, and if something funny came up, and it usually does because, um, I don't know, I have a different way of viewing the world, I guess you could say. Like, I, I, I'm very immature, and I'm very uh, always trying to look for something to laugh at. So um, anytime I could crack a joke, I did. And it was kind of like a... You know, you throw a handful of darts at the at a dartboard, and one of them is bound to hit the bullseye. So that was kind of my mentality. Um, I wanted it to be a fun book. I wanted people. My goal was after you got done reading, I hope you laughed more than anything else, and then after that, maybe you learn something about um, playing basketball or being on a on a college basketball team or something like that. But but my number one goal, and pretty much everything I write, is just to make people laugh and make it entertaining. And um, you might not learn anything. You might not become a better person or reading my stuff, but uh, hopefully it was worth your time because you got a, a few laughs out of it. You mentioned how you weren't trying necessarily to put a million jokes in. You're just trying to write in your voice, in your style. And I think that that's one of the strongest parts of of the book is how well your voice comes through. I kind of mentioned this to a listener last week when we were talking about it that I kind of have a feeling that I might be able to pick out anything you've written at this point because your voice is so strong in the book and I imagine that it's that way in the way you write and some of the stuff I've read in Grantland it's been that way and some of the stuff on the little blog you have a really unique style and a really strong voice that comes through do you do you consider that your greatest strength as a writer and maybe what's one of your I greatest think, weaknesses I, yeah I mean I think that comes from just not being um not having any training whatsoever I mean like I I graduated from Ohio State with a marketing degree. I, I took I took one writing class in my life, and it was in fifth grade, um, a creative writing class. And I actually, uh, um, I in acknowledgments, I, I give my my creative writing teacher in fifth grade a little shout out because uh, she's the only writing teacher I've ever had in my life. So 
Um, I think it's just kind of like it stems from me not having any idea what I'm doing. Um, and that sounds bad. And I mean, a lot of people, uh, you know, probably shouldn't take that path of like, I'm going to become a writer by not having any um, <laughs> training or anything like that. But it worked out for me, I just think, because I write in a very conversational tone. And the way I write is just um, kind of how I think and how I would talk if I was to tell people. Hard to tell people stories. I mean, there are a lot of jokes in there I probably wouldn't tell. And a lot of them are drawn out. And there's a lot of uh, wordplay, you know, that wouldn't um, translate too well um, orally, you know. But for the most part, um, I try to write as if I'm like sitting at a bar and someone was like, Hey, what was uh, what was it like to go to the Final Four? And then that chapter in the final that I wrote about the Final Four would pretty much be exactly what I would tell somebody. So um, that's always been my approach. I don't have training or like I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, so that way I can't um, overthink it. I guess I don't have the journalism or the writing training that maybe other people have. So maybe that's why I stand out for for better and for worse. You know, some people hate my writing because it's not uh, you know the 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 same as as what they're used to. So um, I don't know. I think it's worked out for me, though. Uh, and I think that's probably the big reason why, is because I kind of just don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I mentioned in the intro that you went from working for the team to walking onto the team to eventually being a scholarship member of the team. Mm-hmm. Do you think you would have let. I, I, I'm assuming the question, the answer to this is no, because it actually happened. You, you didn't last as a, a manager, but do you think you would have ever came back to that position? Do you think when the man, when you when you walked away from being a manager, that was it? You were never going to do that again. Um, I think that was probably it in that capacity because I was told as a manager to uh, uh, that I was going to be um, practicing with the team and doing drills and, and being a practice player and stuff. And when I showed up, they had me fill up water bottles and um, videotape practice and, you know, pretty much looking back, stuff I should have expected to do. But for some reason, I was naive and thought I'd get to actually, like, play with the team a little bit. I mean, if they would have asked me to, to, you know, be a practice player or something but not actually be a walk-on, I'm sure I would have come back and, and done it. But uh, the whole filling up water bottles, not that, like, I'm above that, but um, it was just it was just different for me. It was too much. It was too drastic of a change for me because – I was a really good high school player, and uh, I, I could have probably played in college. And not that uh, my ego was—it probably was—but you know, um, it was just too. It was hard enough for me to adapt from being the best player on my high school team to suddenly the bench warmer. So um, that jump from best player to filling up water bottles and, and pretty much doing all the stuff that no one else wants to do, um, doing all the busy work and all that kind of crap. Uh, it was, it was a little too drastic for me to, to handle. Maybe maybe in a few years I could have come back to it and, and missed, if I missed basketball and just wanted to be around the sport and stuff. But uh, I don't know. It was, it was pretty brutal for me the first few weeks. Yeah, you mentioned – this is one thing I've been dying to ask you. You mentioned how you know, you were a really good basketball player in high school, and you kind of mentioned in the book how you got some feelers from some teams that were in the mid-major conferences, but that just wasn't the route you wanted mm-hmm. to go at all. Then when you were in mm-hmm. college – there were some mid-major teams, some specifically from your state, I'm thinking of Butler, who had great success in the NCAA tournament. And it seems like college basketball in general, the smaller schools in the last 10 years or so, have really emerged um, and become better better basketball teams. Do you ever look back and think, you know, maybe there was a spot for me where I could have played, I could have been... Yeah. a big part of the team, and and that team might have been pretty good? Or, or do you just kind of say, you know what, everything kind of worked out for a reason and look where I am now? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say that, uh, you know, I, I made the right decision to, to go to Ohio State because everything worked out for me, you know, pretty well with the, the book and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think back on it all the time. I mean, I still have dreams, uh, like literal dreams, where I'll fall asleep at night and I'll dream about playing college basketball somewhere else and scoring a lot of points and doing, you know, actually getting playing time and stuff. So um, I definitely think about it a lot. Uh but to me, it was always like I kind of I, I kind of realized early on um, at Ohio State um, that just being a part of of being a Buckeye, uh, the, the, what comes with that is um, just unreal. I mean, I, I I would go around I would as a freshman and I was unknown and no one knew who I was uh, sitting on the end of the bench of a Final Four team. I would be driving around Columbus and there would be um, all sorts of events like at malls and and wherever else and signs promoting events for, like, former Buckeye players that are signing autographs or doing this event or doing that event. And I'm sitting there reading the signs. I'm like, I have no idea who these guys are. <laughs> but the fact that, that people want to see them just because they're former Buckeyes, um, that kind of hit me, you know, like, wow, like, if you're a former Buckeye, you're you're a big deal to people. So uh, early on I kind of realized that since I'm not playing professionally and since this is kind of the end for me, um, I need to be thinking about life long term. And I just kind of thought that having that Ohio State uh, connection, you know, would would, would served me wonders and I, it, it ultimately did I mean if I would have wrote my blog you know playing for a butler it wouldn't have been nearly as popular uh, as it was I don't think you know having a huge fan base that Ohio State has all over the country and, and being a Big Ten school and, and even being a hated school I mean not everybody loves Ohio State they're obviously a, it's obviously an easy school to hate for pretty much if you don't like Ohio State you hate them so um, but, but just the, the, the fact that it was a big school it's a big fan base and everyone knows about Ohio State um, that, that, that did me well so I mean, I, I, ideally, I would have had both. You know, I would have been able to go. Uh, maybe I could have played for two years at a smaller school and transferred to Ohio State, did the walk-on thing, and started the blog or something. But um, I, I don't really have any regrets. I mean, I had a good basketball career. I have a lot of fun memories from playing and, and doing the AAU thing in high school and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it definitely would have been fun to have a prominent role in the NCAA tournament team. But um, I don't think I'd trade my career for anything, even even if the book. Uh, hadn't happened, and, and no one still knew who I was. And I was working an office job right now. I still think it worked. It would have worked out well for me. You know, one part of the book that kind of bummed me out is seems like that freshman year was just a whirlwind for you. You know, going as I said from working with the team to walking onto the team, and you go to the Final Four, and it's just an incredible season. And then that next year, it seemed like everything really took a turn for the worst. You want to talk a little bit about this yeah. sophomore season and how? you were able to kind of get through it and improve on your junior and senior year experiences. Yeah, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, that season kind of uh, set up the blog and kind of my whole um, identity now um, because it was a miserable time for me, not just for basketball, but but in life, too. I mean, I don't know if I wrote about it, but uh, I had a long-term girlfriend, like, all through high school, and she dumped me that year. Um, and then my friends, yeah, I wrote in the book that like I, I came to Ohio State knowing Greg, uh, Mike Conley, and Daquan Cook. Those are the only three guys I knew when I got on campus. And but all three of those guys left after one year. And so, um, not that I didn't know my teammates from the year before, you know, but like everybody, I, everybody I knew on campus, I knew for like eight months was all. So it was basically, I, and I'm a really shy guy, um, which is kind of hard for people to believe based on how I write, but. Uh, it was hard for me to make make new friends with my teammates and, and hard for me to fit in. And then on top of that, our team was awful. We had a lot of chemistry issues. Uh, there were people fighting all the time. Um, it was the worst team that Coach Mata, I think, has ever had um, in, his, in his career. So 
there's a lot of that just going on that, that, that made for a pretty miserable time, and it, it was it was tough for me at the time. And I, I had a lot of calls back home, and like I thought about transferring, I thought about you know quitting basketball, I thought about doing a lot of different things that, that I wish that I'm glad I didn't do. Um, but it was a good time for me because I it, it kind of started the the blog because after that year, after the miserable year I had, I kind of realized that. Um, you know, if I'm not going to play on a team that bad and that dysfunctional, then I'm never going to play. I need to switch my attitude because this is going to kill me. Because it was like the worst, it was like the worst year of my life, probably, uh, just for a lot of different reasons. And I decided that I just need to have as much fun as I can because you know I am going to I am going to stop playing basketball soon enough. Um, so I, I really think that being in that moment that, that entire year where we went to the NIT and um, you know everybody hated everybody on the team and all that kind of stuff it was an awful experience but because of that I, I identified that this isn't what college basketball should be it should be fun I should be having fun even if I'm not playing even if our team sucks I should be finding a way to have fun and that's when I started my blog and I decided you know what I'm going to have as much fun with this as I can in my last two years and so uh, that, that year in a way ended up being a good thing for me yeah you know Another thing, and, and since we're kind of getting into the blog, the sportscasters are here with Mark Titus, uh, who you can find on Twitter at Club Trillion. He's also uh, is a contributor and writer for Grantland.com, one of my favorite new websites out there. Um, when you started the blog and you got it going, what do you think was the was the key moment that turned the blog into something that you were kind of writing for yourself and a few people mm-hmm. into the a blog that you were writing for yourself and tens of thousands of people? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely when I went on Bill Simmons' podcast. Too, as, uh, Bill Simmons is now my uh, my boss at Grantland, but um, at the time uh, he had a you know he still does have his podcast. Uh, he, he somehow found out about my blog, and when I went on his uh, podcast, I had about I think five hundred total page hits in about two or three weeks on my blog, which I was ecstatic about. I mean, I thought that was awesome that five hundred different times uh, somebody checked out what I was writing. Um, even though it was probably me just hitting refresh 499 <laughs> times, but whatever. I had 500 hits, I thought it was awesome. But I go on a podcast, and it was like the first real interview I ever did. And the next day, I had, um, or for, from the next day for the rest of the season, I averaged about 40,000 page hits a day. So um, I would say that that was definitely the moment where it went from like this fun little thing I was doing for my family and friends to like suddenly I had a huge audience. Everybody was following it. It seemed like I started to get noticed in public. Um, you know, people at, at games would chant my name and, and want autographs and all that sort of thing. It just kind of became a life of its own overnight. Uh, and and it's definitely because of Simmons, for sure. When the audience changed, did you have to change as a writer? Or do you feel like maybe you changed a little bit unintentionally? Was there some pressure there? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely did have to change because, well, well, part of it was just like a natural change because, I, like I said, I had no experience writing stuff. So, like, when I started, um, I mean, the first few things I wrote are probably awful. I, I refuse to go back and read them because they're <laughs> probably so bad, you know. But uh, So I think a lot of it was probably just, like, natural change. Like, I was kind of, you know, finding what works in, in writing and what doesn't. But, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely would sit down and figure out what, what uh, things that would have to cater to others. Um to a certain audience, because at first I think my mentality was just, I'm just going to write about mundane things in my life so that my family and friends um, know what's going on. And then it kind of became a thing where I had to wait until something huge happened or something, 
that would make for a good story, you know, because uh, I knew a lot of people were reading it. I don't want to just write on there some stupid story and waste people's time. Um, so I, I did become more aware of uh, what would make for a good story, what people would like, what has mass appeal, you know, that sort of thing. And I think uh, it's, it's kind of funny because I've never really been politically correct, but uh, I think I kind of like was more aware of being like a quote-unquote public figure, you know, and and it wasn't just like you know I was I couldn't just sit there and make jokes off the cuff like I I might with my friends that some people might find offensive or stuff I, I kind of had to like be more aware of that that like I could offend people if I say certain things or if I write in a certain way so uh, there's a lot of that going on but I think uh, most of all it was just like I, I had no experience writing and and as I started to to write more I kind of got a better feel of what I was trying to accomplish and um, I, I think I would have done that with an audience or without an audience. You know, it's funny when you when you get to the chapter in the book where you you start to go into all of what you kind of just talked about. You have this kind of disclaimer saying, you know, this is going to be the part in the book where I'm going <laughs> to come off as the douchiest and uh, kind of really yeah. self-deprecating, and it kind of showed me that maybe there's kind of a little bit of deep down guilt or something about your success yeah. or or something like that. It is. Yeah. It, it, it's weird. I, I I mean, like, I don't know. I, I, I've always been, I, I've always, even ever since I've started to get noticed and stuff, it's been weird to me. Like I said, I'm, I'm a pretty shy guy and, uh, I do kind of feel guilty because, um, I, it wasn't supposed to happen this way and, and I'm not, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't feel like I'm entitled to this, you know, like I don't want, I want to make it clear that like I'm, I, I know that this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a, that a bench warmer is, is well known and has a book that um, is selling well and people are reading and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't make sense at all. And, and I'm aware of that. And, and I kind of, I, I understand how lucky I am. And, and in a lot of ways I am, I am guilty. I, I feel guilty because um, I know that, that there are a lot of guys who were in my position that were just as funny and, and probably could have done stuff like I did, but I was just, at the right place at the right time, you know. I had the right coach and, and Thad Mata who let me get away with stuff that there probably isn't a single coach in the country who would have let me do what I did except for him, you know. And and I was at a time where, like, blogging kind of was starting to become popular, you know. Like, I had, I actually had no idea what a blog was. I think I wrote that in a book uh, when I started mine. But nowadays, uh, blogging, maybe it's just because I, I know what it is now, but um, it seems like it's more popular, you know. Um, where 10 years before I wrote mine, uh, there could have been a kid who could have had the funniest blog in the world and he, his blogs just didn't exist. So he didn't have a, he didn't have a way of telling his story. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I realize how lucky I am and, uh, a, a lot of times with, with fame or pseudo fame or all that kind of stuff, people talk about how you, you know, you have to stay relevant and you, you have 15 minutes of fame that are taken down and like, how are you going to, um, use your fame to get more fame and all that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to like make it clear that like I don't care. I, I really don't. I mean, it, it's been a fun ride for me to to be noticed places and to and to um, go from being the anonymous guy on the end of the bench to uh, you know I, th- I think our our SID at Ohio State said like I had the most interview requests my senior year, more so than uh, Evan Turner, who was the national player of the year. So that whole ride was just a blast for me. And if I uh, you know, go away tomorrow and no one ever hears from me again, I'll be perfectly fine with that. I, I just kind of wanted to make that clear that, like, I didn't do this for fame or for for people to know who I am, and I'm certainly not bragging that, like, I'm some sort of celebrity because I'm not. Um, some people who, like, have been reading my stuff forever kind of have a false sense of uh, my importance in the world, I think. They, they kind of think I'm like some big shot, and I try to explain to them 
really not at all. So um, that was kind of what that was about. And I, I definitely do feel guilty and, and, and feel very lucky and, and humbled by the uh, all the opportunities that have come from it. But uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to enjoy it all I can. And, 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 and a lot of it that I wrote in the book, I think, just made for funny stories, you know, that... Uh, the way the 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 things that people noticed me for the, the the interactions I had with fans, I just thought they were funny stories, and I want to make it clear that I'm telling these stories not as a way of bragging, but just because I think they're kind of funny. So that's all that was about. You know, going pro for you was kind of transitioning from the blog that you did for yourself to writing for ESPN Insider and eventually Grantland. How has having a, a paycheck and bosses and uh, deadlines and things like that changed you as a writer, if at all. Um. Well, I've I've always been really laid back, um, and that's that's my personality. I'm like I'm just a very uh, free spirited, easygoing guy, um, and so it's kind of hard for me to uh, have the deadlines and have all the the pressure and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it, it's been okay, I guess. I don't know. Like I, I when I write in a blog. Um, I would write only when I felt like writing. I mean, that was because I wasn't doing it for money. I was just doing it for as a little hobby. So if I didn't have anything to write, I didn't worry about it. And if I didn't have time, I didn't worry about it. Um, but now, you know, obviously that's not a that's not an acceptable excuse. You got to write stuff and you got to get it done. So it's been a little bit of a challenge. But the, the most challenging part actually has probably been like not writing about me. I mean, blogging is easy because all you do is write about or doing it the way I did. It was easy. You just write about stuff that happened. You just write about your life and. And anybody can anybody can write about themselves. You know that's kind of uh, that's what you know the most is yourself. So you can write stories about yourself. Um, and now I have to kind of like analyze stuff and and write about other people and all that kind of stuff. So that's been a, a little bit challenging. But yeah, the deadlines are. Uh, luckily, Grantland has been great with me, and that, and that um, they they value quality over quantity. And so they're they're not on me to uh, you know churn stuff out all the time just for the sake of writing stuff. They want me to take my time and make stuff good and all that so that, that's that been great for me but um yeah having a, having a deadline is definitely weird that first time when they're like yeah get this to us uh you know 48 hours from now and i was like wait what how, how does that work how do i have to <laughs> you know i had to i had to adjust my approach but um it, it's all right it's not too big with you i don't think i'll be all right <laughs> <laughs> the sportscasters are finishing up here with mark titus the author of one of our Book Club Books of the Month Don't Put Me in Coach My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench. Last thing, we'll kind of get you out of here on this. Um, you know, you might have had one of the most impossible lives to predict. It seems like your life has taken incredible twists and turns that you probably never even could have dreamed of. If you sit back and look yeah. at where you want to be five years from now, what does that life look like? Yeah, um, that's what's funny. That's, what, uh, that's the big question. I mean, because. Partly because, like you said, it's, it's a lot of twists and turns, and then also I'm a recent college graduate, and that's always the uh, the question for recent college graduates is what's next. Right. Um, I, I really don't know because, like you said, it, it's it's every time I plan for something, it the, something completely different comes up, and I end up running with that. Uh, I came to Ohio State. I think I said that in the book. It kind of just like uh, served as a good dichotomy there at the end. That like I showed up on campus my first in my freshman year. And I was a pre-med math major who was um, a basketball manager or something like that. And and had like a, I think I had like a 3.8 GPA my first quarter at Ohio State. And I graduated with like a 2.5 GPA in marketing. Um, I was a basketball player who was like kind of a local celebrity. So uh, it was the exact opposite of what my plan was. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like, I, I enjoyed writing for Grantland. I, I 
you know, it's a, it's a fun thing for me to do. I, I watch a ton of college basketball anyway. No matter what I'll do in my life, I'll always follow college basketball very closely because I've done it my whole life, and I, and I love the sport and love the game. Um, so that, that'll definitely always be there. But uh, I, at some point, I think I would like to try my hand at, at writing scripts. Um, like we were talking about earlier, I, I, I enjoy being funny more so than, than being compelling or being um, a good writer necessarily. I enjoy being funny and being a storyteller and all that kind of stuff. So I think it'd be fun to try to write scripts and write funny movies or funny TV shows or stuff like that. But, uh, you know, obviously a lot, a lot of writers say that and a lot of people want to get into that. And it's, it's harder than, than just saying I want to do it. So um, I don't know. I mean, that, that's kind of the fun of me is I'm a, I'm a laid back guy and whatever comes up, I kind of uh, just take on the fly and then see where it takes me. So um, I, I have no idea. I, I can't make a prediction, but hopefully, uh, Hopefully, I'm, I'm, hopefully I don't have a nine to five job and don't have to wear a tie because that sounds uh, that doesn't sound like me at all. I don't have much. All right, like I said, the book is called "Don't Put Me in Coach: My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench." The Twitter is still at Club Trillion. You can find Mark uh, writing on Grantland.com. Uh, anything else uh, that people who dug the book, people who like you anywhere, I should have directed them that I didn't. Um, yeah, I mean, my blog is clubtrillion.com. If you, I don't, I don't update it anymore. Um, it's kind of, uh, dead now, but I still have everything I've ever written, um, during my career at Ohio State posted on there. So, I mean, if you, uh, if you don't, if you aren't aware of what the blog is and kind of want to uh, go back and read some of the old stuff and kind of, uh, fill out the evolution of, of this whole Club Trillion thing, um, you can go back and read all the old ones. They'll, They'll always be out there. I think I pay like ten dollars a year or something to, to have the domain and have to keep the site going. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll always do that. So if you want to go uh, check out the old stuff, um, it's there too. So other than that, though, no, I think you hit it off. All right. Hey, Mark. Thanks a lot for uh, giving us a chance to read the book, give a copy of the book away. You know, have your book be a part of the book club. We really appreciated it, and we really enjoyed the time with you today. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for it. having me. All right. Thank thanks, you Mark. for having me. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, I want to thank Mark Titus for being on the show today. We really appreciate that segment. You know, Grantland is slowly becoming more and more a bigger part of this podcast, and my dream is that someday Grantland is going to be such a part of this podcast that Bill Simmons is going to come on. <laughs> and that's going to be the day our lives change, Don. Sure. All right, in the meantime, uh, this is a segment that we don't do much in the football off season, but in the spirit of the NHL or excuse me, the NFL draft being this week, we thought we'd bring back Five on Fantasy. And what we're going to do, we have a very specific business for Five on Fantasy today. And what we're going to do is Don and I are going to go back and forth from 1 to 12, giving you our very first version of our mock drafts for the first round of fantasy football season in August. All right, I'll start it off. Uh I'm going to probably say this a few times over the course of this mock draft, but I hate taking quarterbacks early. I am the wait-on-a-quarterback guy, but this is a year to some degree. Right now, I should say, there's a lot of indecision. There's a lot up in the air with injuries or holdouts or whatnot. So my first overall pick is Aaron Rodgers. He's been just a fantasy machine the past two seasons, or maybe longer than that. 
he's automatic for 40 touchdowns and a few rushing touchdowns. He's got a good offense around him. So for me, he's the safest number one pick. You can't miss on your number one pick, and I don't think there's any way you miss with him. All right. It's going to be interesting to see how different we are here. Uh, but my first overall pick is Arian Foster, running back for the Houston Texans. I think I still, if I have the first overall pick, I think I still want to take a running back, and I think he's the safest one. So I'm going to go with Foster. I also think that the Texans are going to probably find a way to move uh, Ben Tate, Ben Tate, and feature Foster exclusively. I think they're going to use that asset as a way to improve their team either during the draft this week or after. So I think it's going to be Foster's show, and he's my number one pick. I don't think Tate really took too much from him when he was He did have a 1,000 yards. He had a nice season, but most of that was because Foster was hurt. I'm not saying he's not a player, but I think before last year, people were worried about Foster because of Tate, and they should have just been worried about him because he was banged up. Um, My number two pick is Arian Foster as well. Look, he might. If I were actually drafting right now, I might take him at number one because, like I said, I'm so against taking quarterbacks early. I love that offense. Uh, there's not much more to add than what you've already said. He was banged up last year. Hopefully he he's had a long off season and he's healed up. Other than that. I've always said with fantasy football, you should pick, pick guys you like, especially when there's a tie. And I have a tie between number two and three. So I picked the guy I like better, and that's LaShawn McCoy. I'll just give you my number three right now. It's Ray Rice. Um, I had those guys completely tied. And the thing is, I like Rice, or McCoy a little bit more than Rice because I think he's more of an asset out of the backfield. And also, I've never actually had Ray Rice on a team. I've had <laughs> McCoy a few times, and he's been great for me. So I trust McCoy. I have kind of a fantasy quasi relationship with him. I trust him. So he's my number two. Ray Rice is my number three. My number three is also Ray Rice. Uh, he might even be safer than Foster. I just I don't like his offense nearly as much as I like Foster's. The one problem as a guy that has owned Ray Rice is that Baltimore underuses this guy. He's clearly the most talented guy in that offense, and he's slightly underused. So he will be maddening at times, but he is the goal line guy. They don't have a Willis McGahee there. They didn't last year either, and he scored, He had a lot more touchdowns than the pri- previous year. I think he's just a real safe pick. Uh, if you're going for upside, clearly, like you said, Foster, maybe even McCoy are the guy, but he's he's probably the, he might even be the safest of those three. After Foster, McCoy, and Rice, I think there's a little bit of a drop-off at running back. I would call that my tier one, and the next running back, who I don't have until the eighth pick, would be the start of my tier two. Yeah, I have the next one at seven. So my fourth pick is going to be Aaron Rodgers. Um, I think that he's great value at four, which is crazy to say because usually quarterbacks aren't considered great value at pick four, but I think Aaron Rodgers is kind of a special player that can have value at a number four as a quarterback, so... Uh, I think, like I said, when you're picking four, you don't want to screw it up. And I think Aaron Rodgers has the most safeness of anyone left at this point on my list. Yeah, my number, my top four are the same as yours, just in a different order. My number four is LaShawn McCoy. Uh, I think people expected a little more out of the Eagles last year, but with the whole dream team thing and just seemingly disarray in that team, uh, it didn't happen. So hopefully with a little less of a microscope on him this year, McCoy and Vic can get back to doing what they do. And uh, I think you'd be pretty happy with him at four. At number five, I'm going to go with Calvin Johnson, wide receiver for the Lions. 
this guy clearly established himself last year. Last year, it seemed like Andre Johnson was probably the number one wide receiver off of most boards. Then maybe Larry Fitzgerald might have went in front of Calvin Johnson. None of that's going to happen this year. Calvin Johnson's going to be the first wide receiver gone. He's got a great rapport with Matt Stafford, and I think they're going to get him some protection, too. Uh, I think that's going to be important for the Lions this year. Their running backs are going to be healthy again, and Mikel Ashore and Javid Best. So I love, I would love to get Calvin Johnson at five. I'd be perfectly happy with that. Calvin Johnson's also my number five. Uh, I can't add much more than you already did, but like you said, he might not end up the number one wide receiver by the end of the year, but as far as consensus goes, I, I don't think there's more of a gap at any position than maybe wide receiver this year, maybe quarterback, but but you got Breeze in there somewhere. So Calvin Johnson is clearly the number one receiver off the board. And I totally agree with you. He's my only wide receiver in round one. Uh, I thought a little bit about, you know, the regular players, the Johnson and Fitzgerald and the white and maybe AJ green or those kind of guys. But I, I just think there's not value in the first round for them this year at number six. I have drew Breeze. Obviously, you're going to have to monitor the situation with his contract and the holdout. Yeah, yeah. But I think that all that's going to be sorted out one way or another. I think Drew Brees is going to be out there, and I think Drew Brees is going to be motivated to prove that he's a great quarterback without Sean Payton. I think that's going to be important for Brees, especially if for some reason he doesn't get a long-term deal. If Brees is playing on some kind of one-year contract, he's going to want to prove that he's going to he can still be an elite quarterback even when he's not with Sean Payton because if you look back at Brees' career, he was a good quarterback in San Diego, but he wasn't great. He wasn't great until Sean Payton was there. I think this is going to be the year he can prove that he's great without him, and I have no doubt in his ability, so he's my number six. Drew Brees is actually also my number six, which is funny because we've done these, like you said, totally separately. Um and again, this is less of a knock on him. He's really not all that far from Aaron Rodgers, but uh, just this is my preference not to take quarterbacks. I don't even know if I would take take him at six, but again, that's my drafting preference, not a knock on him. My number seven is Tom Brady, another quarterback. This was, again, a situation where I had Breeze and Brady pretty much rated equally, but being a Saints fan, I went with Breeze ahead of Brady. The the thing that scares me is, you know, Brady's getting up there maybe a little bit and you wonder if he can have as good of a season as he had last year, which one of the, one of the best seasons a quarterback could have. But I still think Tom Brady's safe, man. I think he's great. I would think so. I too. think he's really safe and I'm not ready to pick Maurice Jones, Drew, Ryan Matthews or Matt Forte, so I'm going to I'm going to I think we've been pretty consistent here in saying safety is what we're going for, and at 7, I think he's the safest player left. My number seven actually is Maurice Jones-Drew. He won the rushing title last year. Uh, he might be the most underrated player in a long, long time. He's right. done a lot with not a lot. And I've always undervalued him for that purpose. I think I said last year if I had like a 12-1 and one at the end of the first round, he I probably still wouldn't pick him. And that was, that was way wrong. So with all the mystery and uh, – uh, controversy and injury surrounding other running backs. I think he's relatively safe, even on that garbage offense. Yep. So give me a safe pick at number seven, and I'll take Jones Drew. My number eight is Jones Drew. The only reason I have him at eight and don't have him higher is because I want to see how he responds after such a physically demanding yeah. season that he had last year. That's the only scary thing about Maurice Jones Drew. Can he come back and do it again when everybody knows it's going to him and his body is that much more. He's not huge. 
You know, he's not a big guy. He's jacked, don't get me wrong, but he's not tall. And it'll right. be interesting to see what the wear and tear is on his body this year. But I still think he's pretty safe, and I'd be thrilled. I'd do a backflip out of the draft if I got this guy at number eight. My number eight is actually the last running back I have in the dra- in the first round, and that's Matt Forte. Uh, again, it's another guy I've always kind of undervalued, but his talent is there. Uh, he did, was injured at the end of last season. Otherwise, I think he'd go much higher than this. And the other downfall is I'm just waiting for that situation between him and like the management there to just kind of blow up and right. him just to walk off the field and say, forget this, you guys don't respect me. But he's got a ton of talent, and they're actually surrounding him with some players in Chicago, so he maybe won't have to handle quite the load that he did there. Uh, and he's just he catches passes, too, so in a PPR league, he's even more valuable. And there's just a lot of question marks about all the other running backs after him. So he's the last running back I take in the first round. That's number eight. This is where our, our lists are going to get very different. Yeah, for sure. I think. Uh, my number nine pick is Ryan Matthews. Running back for the Chargers. I had him on a team last year, and I really, I really thought he he really was a good player. And I think he's going to be all that much better this year. The Chargers like him a lot. I don't think Tolbert's going to steal as much away from him as he did. Is Tolbert even still there? I don't I'm even know. Not sure. I'm not even sure if Tolbert's there or not. That's how insignificant I think he is. So my number nine is Ryan Matthews. See, Ryan Matthews is a funny guy to me because he's one of them running backs that. His rookie year was terrible. Right. Uh, and last year, at the start of the year, it's just like I have this feeling about Mendenhall. I don't think Mendenhall is good. I just think he's there. You know what I mean? Like he's on a good team and a good offense, and I kind of wondered that about Matthews. And then he did have a better second half of the season. But I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'm a little bit too down on him. But Super anyway, talented. My number nine is uh, Tom Brady, you already mentioned. And, again, not a guy to take quarterbacks, but I – have him and another one back in the draft. And the one reason that I might be more likely, especially toward the tail end of the first round, if I'm picking at like eight or nine or 10, I might be more likely to take a quarterback because there might just not be that many running backs off the board at this point. And you might be able to pick up like three in the next three rounds that are gambles. If Adrian Peterson might not go until the third or fourth round, right. and that might win you a league. If he plays, if he doesn't play for a bunch of weeks, it might be over before he gets in. But, uh, there are going to be running backs available this year because there's so much quest- so many question marks about him. And Brady, like you said, is a safe pick. And if you're looking for safe, he's fine. The one thing that does downgrade him a little bit for me, and maybe this is too much of a homer thing, is the Bills got a lot better in the pass rush. Uh, the Jets are always decent. Miami's always decent on defense. So his division games are going to be tougher this year. Interesting. But he's, he's really huge. interesting. He's massively talented with anonymous receivers. So. My number 10 is Matt Forte. Really could have ranked him number 9. The only reason I didn't is because I'm worried about a holdout or something like that. Forte is a guy that I think when we're at version 3.0 or 4.0 of this could be much higher. You know what I mean? He's a guy who's going to – right now he's 10, but I could see him being closer to 4 if things like contract and health – and things like that get sorted out. If we're sitting here in August and that guy's been a beast in the preseason yeah. and he has a contract, there's no way he's getting picked at number 10. Right, in a league where there's so much running back by committee and he gets the ball so much. Like, he gets the ball uh, 
like Marshall Falk used to get the ball. So he's going to be a guy who I think is going to be a mover as we get closer to the season. My number ten, uh, and this one kind of strays from the whole safety thing, but I just think he's immensely talented, and I love the offense. Is Andre Johnson? Bef- when he wasn't hurt last year, he was a monster. But that's yep. that's the big what if with him. I think at ten, you can gamble a little bit more because you're going to pick again in five picks, and you can still get one of those. You can still get a solid running back or a good quarterback. Uh, if he stays healthy, and I know it's a big if, he's gonna, he'll have a huge year. I had four players that I debated for 11 and 12, and I'm going to give you 11 and 12 at the same time. I had four players. I had Cam Newton and Matthew Stafford. Okay. And I had DeMarco Murray and, De- and Jamal Charles. I do love Jamal Charles. I just kind of forgot about him. I Here's think. the thing. I don't know what's going to ha- – Jamal Charles is coming back from an ACL. Yep. DeMarco Murray's coming back from a broken bone. Very rarely does a broken bone stop a guy from continuing his career at the point he did before. Usually the bone heals, and it heals stronger and harder than it did before. So I think DeMarco Murray is going to be fine in terms of his injury. He's still injury-prone, though. He was injury-prone at Oklahoma. When he got a shot in Dallas, he got hurt. So... DeMarco Murray is ultimately my number 11 only because I think his injury is easier to come back from than an ACL. My number 12 is Cam Newton only because he gives you more of an overall game than Stafford. Stafford's basically a statue, and he's been knocked around because of it in his career. But he's going to throw – if he throws for 5,000 yards, you're not going to care how much he runs around. Right. But Newton is a guy who's going to throw for maybe not five but 4,000 yards. And also the touchdowns he scores from the five-yard line in are unlike any quarterback out there. So I have Murray at 11. I have Newton at 12. And if we went farther, I'd probably have Jamal Charles at 13 and Matthew Stafford at 14. Yeah, I love I love Jamal Charles. I kind of just forgot about him probably because he didn't play it all last year. It, it's going to be a really interesting year for sophomores because you've got guys like A.J. Green, DeMarco Murray, and Cam Newton. And, and, and Dalton. And yeah, there's just a lot of – Dalton doesn't Jones. quite have quite as much fantasy value. Yeah, yeah, Julio Jones. There's going to be some guys that it, it's going to Mark be hard. Ingram. Yeah, there's a total switch in where guys are usually slotted, uh, and it has to do with all these rookies. There's a lot of youth in fantasy. My number 11 is Matthew Stafford. I actually had the same thought in my head. Was it Cam Newton or Matthew Stafford? I went with Stafford just, again, because I think he's a little bit safer. I worry that guys that defenses figure out a guy like Cam Newton, whereas Stafford is just a talented, prototypical quarterback with better weapons around him. Uh, and I just think that's basically what it comes down to. Is I just think he has the more talented We both agree cast. there's just not a big difference between the two. Like, those are the no. next two, and it's uh, – Splitting hairs, for sure. Yeah, my number twelve. Uh, I stole this idea a little bit from Matthew Barry. I'm a guy that likes to have matchup advantages. I want to go into a fantasy week, and when I put my lineup in, I want to say I'm going to beat you by ten points at the, or five points at this position just by starting this guy. Here? Yeah, I took Rob Gronkowski. I like it. The difference between him and the second tight end, which was his teammate, I believe, or no, 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 no it was Jimmy, Jimmy Graham. Jimmy Graham. Yeah was massive still. Uh, if and you, Graham had an all-time season, too. And Graham had a great season. Yeah. Not that you can really expect Gronkowski to duplicate that season, but he's going to be the best tight end in the league, probably. He's going to be Brady's injury. number one target besides Welker. I mean, it's him and, and Welker. a team that's going to throw like crazy because they don't even – who's the running back on that team anymore? Gus. Green Ellis is 
gone. Yeah, it's actually Gus Gus back. And I would feel safe at 12 taking this pick because I get the first pick in the next round. So I'm going to take the safest running back left or the safest wide receiver. So just... you might go Gronk and Charles here. Sure. If it you know played out, something yeah, like if that. Charles, if I, Charles right. had a great preseason, I felt he was safe, then I, I, just, I like the idea of putting in a guy that I know is going to beat your guy every week on an average week. You know, this wasn't my plan, but let's do round two next week. Sure. Because you know what? I think there's so many guys left that we haven't talked about yet. And there was a bunch of guys that we just left off. So we'll, we'll do round two next week. We'll pick it up next week. I think like you said, we said this off there. There's literally probably 20 to 25 guys that you can make an argument. Could be, would, first could be first round. Right. And that's why I think it'd be really fun to do around two next week. It's, so it's we'll really interesting. It's, it'll be interesting to see if in August, if it's still this interesting or if the, the mock drafts all kind of come together, like the real NFL draft has this year. Agreed. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to continue the conversation with a professional quote unquote, and talk to Adam rank from fantasy football live on NFL.com. So we'll be right back with Adam rank. Our next guest is a native of Southern California and is a graduate of Cal State Fullerton. He is a stand-up comedian. He gives fantasy advice on NFL.com, and he is the co-host of the Dave Damaschek football program. He is making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to one of the funniest guests we have ever had, Adam Rank. How are you doing today, Adam? Steve, thank you so much. What a generous introduction to say that I'm the co-host of the Dave <laughs> Damaschek football program because you'll understand my name doesn't appear on the title. Everybody else gets a name on the title. They get the little picture. You come to NFL.com, you see the Cover 2 podcast, and I don't know who the two guys are who do that, but both their pictures are on it. <laughs> you see the Fantasy Live one, their pictures, Michael Faviano and the other guy's pictures on it. Where's Rank? Rank's nowhere to be found. We might have but to yes, but thank check, you. Uh, That's nice of you, though. It's nice of you to say that, co-host. I, uh, I should run that by Damashek, <laughs> but I'm afraid he'll, he'll just backhand slap me. Yeah, we're going to have to talk to uh, Dave next time we talk to him about his ego, maybe. Maybe that ego is getting a little crazy, you know? <laughs> Won't give any props to oh, his boy rank. Yeah, <laughs> he's got his own podcast. He does Talking Ball, The Shame Report. Now he's got this tremendous thing that he's doing for Cars.com and the NFL.com, NFL Network, all, all this good stuff. He's a high-profile guy, you know, and sometimes, you know what, if you're the goose to his maverick, you know, so be it. Right. But, you know, as long I'm, as just, the plane I'm just riding the crash. coattails. As long as the plane doesn't crash, it's sorry it's to be goose. Hey, last yeah, time. I just realized that I, I put myself in the seat to get killed in this, <laughs> in this little analogy I was laying out, which may have been ill-informed, but fair enough. You know, last time we talked, we talked about starting a uh, car chase network. Any progress there? Car chase network is still in development. We're pitching it around to the studios. Uh, we're also pitching around the, the idea of the red zone. For the adult channels. Right, right. Yep. The, you know, that that's another one, too. I, I got a lot of projects, you know. NFL NFL Network, I think, even though I don't get my name on, you know, anything, I think they, they recognize a rising star, and they know that, you know, if I'm able to sell this car chase thing, if I'm able to sell this the Naughty Bit channel, then I'm, I'm gone. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge star by that point. 
they can't afford me. So they're keeping me down a little bit by giving me so much work. So I haven't had the chance to, you know, really delve delve into these projects that I like I would like to. So they're coming along. I'll let everybody know. Yes, the Car Chase channel will happen. The Red Zone for naughty bits of uh, cable access will happen. But we're, we're we're a little bit behind right now. Update us on the stand-up comedy. I know last time we had talked, you were just uh, you just um, we're getting ready for a show out in California. There, what's new on the comedy? You working on any new material? Are you playing any shows anytime soon? What's up with the stand-up? Yeah, it's been doing really well once the season ended. Thank you uh, for asking. I've um, gotten a couple of shows here locally, the Bray Improv, the Irvine Improv. Still would like to go out and see a little bit more of the country than I you know, would like to. Didn't get a chance to showcase for the Montreal Comedy Festival. Uh, didn't get the chance to go up to Portland like I'd wanted to for their comedy festival. But I'm still at it, still going out, you know, hitting open mics, hitting shows. I performed for two people last night. Funny story, I, I booked you know, shows in advance, and a couple of weeks ago, some promoter came up to me and goes, hey, you know, can you come out and do my show here in Cerritos, California, Sunday night? You'll get a couple of bucks for gas. You know, all right, sure, you know, I'll go out and work on some new stuff. Well, it turns out it's game five of the NHL playoffs, my Los Angeles Kings against the Vancouver Canucks. Now, even if I would have known this was going to be game five, I would have booked this show anyways because I would have figured the Kings would have been eliminated by then <laughs> or they would have, bound three, would have been down three to one, and it wouldn't have mattered. So I'm like, you know what, I'll go up, I'll, I'll do the show, no problem. And then, of course, as luck would have it, the Kings are, you know, up 3-1 to one on the verge of closing it out. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I, it's not really a dilemma for me because I'm having a hard time watching this game because the Flyers, they, you know, they blew their chance to sweep the Penguins, but they went out and crushed Pittsburgh there in their game five. So there was no drama. But the Kings fell behind weren't scoring, finally scored in the third period. And I'm watching this game on my phone. I got it fired up, and I'm like, overtime starting, and I go, oh, my God, they're going to score while I'm on stage. So that's what happened. I was on stage killing, and then the Kings killed the Canucks. So I didn't get to see it, but it was a great moment for me nonetheless. You know, I actually picked the Canucks before the, or the Kings before the season started. There was something that wasn't right about the Canucks to me. And, you know, even beyond that, I, I picked the Kings and the Sabres to play in the Cup this year. Obviously, the Sabres didn't work out. But when you look at the Kings team and, and you see Richards and Carter and Kopitar and Doughty and the season that Quick has had, why were they only the eighth seed? To me, it, I believe it has a lot to do with the system that they're running. They're still, even though they had a coaching change during the middle of the year, they're still playing a variation of the, the dump and chase style of hockey which isn't really uh, it, really a good fit for their offense. And with the guys that they have now, because for so many years the Kings didn't have that firepower and that's the kind of style that they needed to play to keep it close. But now you've got you know these guys who can skate and can go out and make plays when, when they need to. I would like to see them open it up a little bit more next season. Hopefully that's something they have going forward. But I do like that it's kind of built well for the hockey playoffs for this type, this time of year. And you saw it last, uh, last night, but they were, I'm assuming this is going to be aired on Monday. So I'm saying this on Monday. We saw this on Sunday night. They were taking more chances. They were getting some good shots and some good, some good, uh, pressure in front of the goal. And Snyder was just playing out of his mind. So, but they did. And you saw that they were a little bit more aggressive. And even though 
it didn't turn out to be a blowout. They did look like they were going to win that game just because they had such great pressure. So hopefully this next series against St. Louis, you know, another series that you would expect is going to be very low scoring. Yep. Hopefully, again, that works into their favor because they have the guys that when they need to go out and pressure the puck, they can go out and do it. You know, Philadelphia ran Richards and, and Carter out of town because they didn't think they could play in the playoffs. And I guess Mike Richards is certainly proving them wrong. He was absolutely fantastic in the Vancouver series. Any thoughts on Richards' play here in the playoffs? Yeah, it's exciting to have a guy. <clears throat> excuse me. It's exciting to have a guy with that kind of skill set who can come out and do so many things. And I, I think, too, what also helps is playing in Los Angeles. It's a little bit more relaxed, I think. The Philly fans who I love, you know, they're very tough on their athletes, as it's been well reported right. and, and probably, you know, glorified in some in some sense. The Kings fans, to me, have always been some of the best in sports, maybe the best in sports. They haven't had the history of winning that a lot of organizations have had. They're really loyal. They they joke around that there's only twenty thousand Kings fans in Los Angeles, and they're at every game. So I think they're really good fans. And being out here in L.A., you know, you're even playing in the Staples Center, you're overshadowed by the Lakers. You're overshadowed by Blake Griffin. There's a lot of things going on. So these guys can come out and play, and the pressure's not as great. And you see, you know, I mean, I mean just beating Vancouver, I don't want to say that, you know, we're satisfied. I want to see the Kings win the Cup. But, you know, that's a huge deal to go out and win one playoff series. I mean, just going out and not getting embarrassed sometimes, that's, as a Kings fan, that's how you've kind of beaten yourself down to. And it's really weird, you know, as a, as a Southern California sports fan, because the Lakers have been so good for so long, and that anything less than a championship is a complete and utter disappointment. And for the Kings, you know, for the last couple of years, you know, just making the playoffs has been hard. Now they're winning a series. So I think having that, not having a lot of pressure on you is going to be great for Richards, great for Carter. And, you know, Quick is just playing out of his mind. So I'm really excited for this next series. It's going to be interesting to see how the Staples Center juggles, you know, playoffs for the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Kings. Has that ever, yeah, has that made, ever happened yeah, at one time? That, they had to do that last week on the Sunday night. Uh, they, had to, they had the Lakers play during the day, and then they did the changeover, and the Kings were playing that night. I, I guess it's bad for you guys on the East Coast because the game's not going to start till 1030 your time. But, you know, for us, it's cool. You know, you get to see some basketball, and then you get to see hockey. I don't know if I'm springing this on you or not. I hope I'm not. But um, just before you came on, Don and I, we talked a little bit about, in the spirit of the draft coming up, we talked a little bit about fantasy football. It's the first time we've mm-hmm. done it this year. And I'm just curious, Rank, in your mind, I love I love the work you do on Sundays of fantasy football during the season. So I'm just curious, what is the first round kind of starting to look like in your mind for the fantasy football season as we look ahead to August drafts? How dare you spring this on me? (laughs) I had no forewarn. No, I'm just kidding. You know what you're going to see in fantasy football this year is a lot of guys are going to be drafting quarterbacks early. And I think if you've been playing fantasy football for the last 5, 10 years, even longer, your strategy has always been, you know what, I'm going to go two running backs, then I'm going to get my receiver, I can wait on a quarterback, and that's basically how you would build your team. But now... The quarterbacks are so important, and it's such a, a vital position that you can't pass on it anymore. And also, there's no more featured running backs anymore. I mean, they've become few and far between. If you look at a guy like Arian Foster, who you would probably categorize as a feature running back, 
even he gave up a lot of carries to Ben Tate, who had close to 1,000 yards, might have had 1,000 yards. Excuse me, I don't have it on the top of my head. So now when you have guys that can't miss at running back, you're looking at Arian Foster and you're looking at Ray Rice. And then you probably look at LaShawn McCoy as well. But there's other guys. You know, Matt Forte is going to have some problems because he's got Michael Bush there. He's probably going to hold out, so that's going to be bad. Maurice Jones-Drew is coming off a fantastic season. But even then, can he duplicate that again? I don't think so. And then you look at Michael Turner. He's going to take a step back. So now you're getting really thin at the running back position. I know a lot of people talk about Darren McFadden. I'm like, he's been healthy for one season out of his four that he's been in the NFL. I don't know how you can trust that guy. DeMarco Murray is a guy that I'm high on. He was great last year, but again, he has injury problems. So when you get into a situation like that, after those first couple of guys go, you can't trust anybody, so why not go after Aaron Rodgers, Cam Newton, guys like that. I could imagine a situation where you would have five quarterbacks going in the first round. If you had Rodgers, Newton, if you had Drew Brees, if you had Stafford, and four... And Brady, excuse me, yeah, thank you. Uh, Yeah, so Brady, five quarterbacks who could go in the first round, and then in the second round, you're going to start panicking a little bit too, and then maybe pick up a guy like Phillip Rivers. Somebody's going to probably press the the button on Peyton Manning far too early and take him in the second or third round. So you're going to see these quarterbacks flying off the boards more than ever before, and then you're going to get your running backs later in the draft. I mean, if Trent Richards is drafted by the Browns, he becomes a top 10 fantasy running back, probably top 12, because he's going to be a featured back in Cleveland. Right. And then otherwise, you're going to have to wait. You know, why not wait for a guy like LeGarrette Blunt, who's going to have a good breakout season this year because Shiano wants to run the ball. So if they don't get Trent Richardson's and, and Blunt ends up being the featured back there, there's a guy. But you can wait to draft him in the third round because a lot of people are going to be scared off because of his past. Yeah, it's a really interesting interesting season this year. It's going to be interesting to see when magazines come out and camps go on and, and teams develop. The Sportscasters are here with uh, Adam Rank, who you can follow on Twitter pretty easily by just uh, typing in at Adam Rank. Uh, very easy there. You can follow his comedy. You still got uh, www.adamrank.com going there, bud? That's still there. I'm a little disappointed that we haven't had a fake Adam Rank yet. That's, that's right. when I think that you've reached a certain level of, of stardom is when you get the fake account. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm holding my, I'm holding my, no, I'm crossing my fingers for that. Holding my breath, crossing my fingers. I don't know what I'm doing. Superstardom. Superstardom is one of the articles of your clothing have an account. Like Sabres coach Lindy Ruff has, uh, someone created a Lindy Ruff's tie account. You know, that's when Ooh. you know you've really made it. Like if uh, your clothes start to talk on Twitter. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like all the holograms that have come out on Twitter too. No, in, in light of the Tupac uh, concert. In light of the in light of the Tupac, there was the Tupac uh, hologram Twitter account. I think I saw a. I think I saw an Al Davis, a hologram Al Davis, mm-hmm. which was pretty smart. So I'm like, you know, I, I like all these. I like the fake accounts. What's up with Pujols, man? What's up with them? Yeah, no home runs. They did spin one of those things that you probably feared the worst when the Angels signed him, but he was so good in. In the spring, you know, he, he hit seven home runs, Trumbo hit six. You would look at that and you'd be like, all right, once he gets the first one out of the way, he'll be fine. But it just keeps dragging out longer and longer. And the way I look at it is, you know what, It's he's going to end up hitting 30 home runs. 
as long as they don't fall too far behind, then they'll be okay. And if once he starts putting it together and once he starts tearing the cover off the ball, which we all know he's going to do, then the team will be fine. So as long as they can tread water, we just took two or three from the Orioles. We can go back, just win some series, and when he gets right, the whole offense is going to click. And uh, maybe he can start you know, throwing some innings out of the bullpen too to kind of help. Because they hate Dan Heron for whatever reason, that he's been pitching brilliantly in his last couple of outings and the bullpen has just gagged it away. And uh, it's pretty disgusting to see. But, you know, as an Angels fan, you know, you've even though we won in 2002 and we had a great decade of division winners, we still have that nagging doubt in our minds that, you know, the worst is going to happen. Does it bug you to see the Dodgers having the early success that they're having? I mean, Matt Kemp seems like he's just a, a superstar of superstars. I mean, him and Ethier already have 43 RBIs in 16 games. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you get to play the Padres, you know? Right. If the Angels, you know, if the Angels opened up with nine against the Padres, I'm pretty sure that everything would have been hammered out and ironed out. But now that the Dodgers are playing, some, they're not even playing better competition. They're not even beating the Astros. So it is, it's funny. I, it, it is disappointing because all the Dodger fans, you know, whoever's left out here, they do get to gloat for a little bit. You know what? Enjoy it. Enjoy your moment in the sun. You'll, you know, it's, uh, it's been a nice little start for you guys and you beat the Padres and we, you know, have fun with all of that. But, you know, when the season ends, we'll look back. We'll see who's in first and who's going to the playoffs and who isn't. And I know it's not going to be the Dodgers. All right, last thing, Rick, before we let you go. Um, last thing? Already? We've already been talking 20 minutes, bro. I already I already talked too much. I understand. <laughs> and I do want to say one thing about the Dodgers, too. Yeah, go ahead. I don't like them. No. No. I just thought I had to throw that out. I didn't know if I needed to clarify. What about, you know what? And i got to say this, too. Can I? I'm sorry. You had a question. No, go, go, I go. I don't want to hijack the show. Consider it hijacked. Go ahead. What do you got? But I will. I will. I got a couple of things. I feel that I need to talk about uh, the Minnesota thing. I know a lot of people have been talking about Minnesota possibly moving, moving to Los LA. Angeles. Yep. Uh, no, I'm old enough. Well, I'm barely old enough to remember the '70s playoffs, and I get more of this probably handed down to me from from older members of my family and older friends of mine. But the Vikings and the Rams had a a rivalry during the 70s that was pretty competitive, and the Cowboys were in the mix. Those three teams constantly fighting for position to be the uh, representative for the NFC. rather. And the Rams always lost to the Vikings. It was disappointing. They could never get over the, the hump. And if the Vikings had had that stupid dome in the 70s, I guarantee you the Rams would have had at least two Super Bowl appearances. They wouldn't have lost in the stupid metal land, not metal lands, but Metropolitan Stadium. So whenever there's talk about, you know, hey, the Vikings should, you know, consider Los Angeles, allow me to speak for Los Angeles area sports fans when I say no to the Vikings. And as a matter of fact, we don't want the Vikings. We don't want the Bills. The Bills should stay in Buffalo because the fans are awesome and they don't need to move. San Diego should keep the Chargers. Pretty much every metropolitan city should keep their team. The only one that makes sense, and the only one we would want back, are the Los Angeles Rams. And I get tired of when I listen to people who aren't connected to the market having an opinion of like, well, this is the team that should move over here. This is what – let me tell you something. I'm tired of it. I don't care whatever whatever, you know, national – pundit wants to say about, oh, the Chargers would be a good fit. No, the Chargers would not be a good fit. 
because San Diego is an awesome town. San Diego has awesome fans. They deserve to keep the Chargers. And I'm tired of people just trying to dictate what should happen into our market because I'm the kind of guy who's going to go out and buy season tickets. I'm the guy who's going to support the team through merchandise and things like that. And I'm not going to be feeling good about hijacking a team from another city. I know what the fans in Minnesota would be going through if they lost the Vikings. The, the Minnesota fans have been awesome. They have supported that team for years, and they do not deserve to lose the team because their stadium was, you know, they, they made a mistake with the Metrodome. They should be allowed to keep the Vikings. And the same thing with the Bills. You can make a team work there. The fans are great. Your stadium's great. Just keep them there. So I just want the Rams. And if it's not going to be that way, then that's fine. We just won't have a team. We've survived for 15 years. We'll survive for another 30 it won't matter. Um, I think the NFL loses out by not having a team in L.A. because I think a lot of a lot of people out here, you know, the Lakers are number one. You know, the, the Dodgers and the Angels draw three million fans. Both hockey teams do well, and you're actually losing out. So on behalf of L.A. fans everywhere, let me say, Rams are nothing. Please stay in Minnesota. I'm really surprised to, see, to hear you say you don't want the Jaguars. I mean, that's an exciting group right there. The Jaguar, you know what's weird is I have a, a, I don't think it's a weird fascination. I like Jacksonville. As a matter of fact, the Jaguars draw better than the Buccaneers and the Dolphins. The Jaguars have pretty good support. It, it's a little misleading because that stadium that they play in is so huge, huge yep. because they need it that big for the Georgia-Florida game every year. So it's a little misleading because it's like when the Raiders played in the Coliseum and you have 100,000 seats. It's kind of hard. And, you know, the Rams have this problem, too. It's kind of hard to fill a 100,000-seat stadium. And uh, Jacksonville Stadium is not quite that big, but it's still a pretty big stadium. They still do a pretty good job. And I like Jacksonville. It's the home of Leonard Skinner. Who, who would have any problem with Jacksonville? It's got, like, beach bars selling beers for $3 a pop. That's a great town. They should keep the Jaguars. They're fine there. I don't want to see them move. You know, I hope I'm not flying with you the next time you fly because this whole con- this whole conversation you keep bringing up things that end in plane crashes, like Leonard Skinner tragically died of a, in a plane crash, and you you oh to- that's a joke! How dare you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's funny. No, I didn't want to. I I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go too far. But no, that's that's a great point. I know it is weird, and I'm not a good flyer either. I'm very I'm a very nervous flyer. I was watching, you know the beginning of Lost the last time I was on a plane. Oh, I'm like, my. I probably shouldn't be watching this, should I? <laughs> no. Somebody 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 should have tipped me off to the to the to at, the uh, to least, the plot here. At least so you I'm weren't like, watching you know it live. That movie where all the yeah. people eat each other after the plane crash. At least you weren't watching Yeah, that, that. was the next Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna put I was gonna go listen to Buddy Holly. And just... <laughs> Buddy Holly right. followed by uh, um guitar solo by Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yes, Rick. <laughs> the, Re- the, the Roberto, out, the big bopper, the Roberto Clemente uh, career highlight film. <laughs> oh, that, oh, you know that was too, too soon. soon, too soon. Yeah, yeah, that one was that one was too soon. No, oh, well, leave it to me to go. Well, I, I'm not trained in comedy like you are. I don't know the line. You know what I mean? There is no line. All right, thanks, Rick. That's the way. That's the way you should go. Listen, there was a there was an there was a kid in the audience last night. He was one of the two. And, you know, I, I, I went out there, and, and, it's, and it's weird when you have a child in the audience because you do want to curb your language. And I'm not a big cusser. I don't, I don't work blue. But some of my material, I feel, is adult-themed. So I said the only thing I could really do is go talk to him about, you know, legalizing marijuana. 
and how great that is for children. Yeah, that, that would be fantastic for children. It's a great lesson for the kids, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, too. I don't know if you saw this on ESPN.com the, uh, the other week. Is they had a huge story on the legalization of marijuana. Yeah, no, they the, had some stuff the in the mar- magazine, too. Yeah, the, the marijuana problem in yeah. college football. I'm mm-hmm. like, have you guys read the headlines for the last couple of years in college football? I think, I think marijuana is the least of your, your worries. Yeah, probably. Am I wrong? Am I no. wrong? Oh, I'm sorry, Buffalo. Did I lose you? <laughs> no, Buffalo. Am, am I am I stepping on some like? Oh, okay. Apparently, you disagree. That's fine. <laughs> That's fair. But I, I I read the headlines, and it's if some guy is sitting there after practice and he's enabling and listen i say this as somebody who doesn't smoke marijuana but if that's the worst of your problems you're you're doing pretty well yeah i mean it's it's you take that over child molestation scandal and things like that obviously whoa 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 way too soon wait no i'm kidding but no that's exactly the point like after you know everything that went down in penn state it's like okay can we have a little bit of perspective about what's really important and what we should really be like concerned about and, you know, all sorts of things, bullying, that kind of stuff. Like, there's a lot more, you know, if you gave bullies marijuana, maybe they wouldn't be so, you know, aggro. You yep. know what? Maybe that's how you settle it. Syracuse has got it right. They put a policy in place banning marijuana. Then if you test positive for marijuana, they just completely ignore it. Yes. That's the perfect system. That's what we do out here in California. Well, if it works in California, it makes sense for Syracuse. That's all I have to say. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Rank. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. That's it? We're gone? We're gone. We we went 27 uh, minutes. I asked you for 15. So, oh, that's true. Yeah. And I do have stuff to do. I do uh, probably should get in a couple of plugs. Uh, NFL. Yeah, uh, yep. NFL.com Live is going to be here following the draft. If you're like me, I live in a Time Warner community, so I can't get the NFL draft. So if you want to watch some draft coverage, want to get a little – want to see me – a lot, a little bit of fantasy advice. We'll have all the cast of characters on our show. You can follow that uh, Friday and Saturday. And NFL, or excuse me, Thursday, Friday. NFL.com live. Awesome. Anything else? Any comedy shows to look forward to? Anything like that? Uh, for all of you in Buffalo, I implore you to fly out Wednesday night. Okay, this Wednesday. Come see me at the West Side Bar and Grill in Costa Mesa. And then we'll I did have a show on Tuesday, and I can't remember what it is. I should be better at promoting. Oh, you know what? It got canceled. Oh, so Wednesday, that's it. I'm going to go to the Anchor Bar tonight. I'm going to go do some. I'm going to go do some open mics. Work on a little bit of you know. Work on a couple of jokes, you know. And then uh, Wednesday, yeah, that's it. But nobody's nobody's going to come out to see that. Oh, that's Look right. for me though. Look for me at the Improv though. Sounds good, buddy. Thanks for everything. All right, I want to thank Adam Rank for joining us on the podcast today. As of right now, we're guaranteed to have two Game 7s in Round 1 of the NHL playoffs. The West is done. We know the Round 2 matchups in the West. It's going to be St. Louis versus L.A., and it's going to be Phoenix and Nashville. And like I said earlier, one of those teams, if they win the Cup, they're going to be a first-time winner. In the East, as we're recording right now, we don't know if there's going to be a seven games in New Jersey versus Florida, Florida, or if Florida is going to close it out in six. We don't know. One thing we know for sure is that there's going to be a game seven between the Rangers 
and the Senators, and there's going to be a Game 7 between the Bruins and the Capitals. So real quickly, Don and I are going to give you what we think are the keys to victories for each team. I'm going to have the home teams. Don's going to have the road teams. Let's start with the Rangers versus the Senators, and I'll give you my three keys to victory for the Rangers. Number one, I think the Rangers need to score first, and they need to get Henry Lundqvist a lead and get the crowd at the Garden into it. First goal is always important. It wasn't important in the uh, in the Pittsburgh and Philadelphia series because no one in the first five games who scored the first goal won a game. But when you're talking about a game seven and you're talking about getting your crowd in it, I think the Rangers need to really score first, and they're a different team when they have a lead, a much different team when they have a lead. Number two, I think the Rangers need to score second. Uh, you know, not only they need to score first, they need to score second. And they need to break the spirit of the Senators. They need the Senators to not think that they can win the game. They need to give Henry. If Henry Lundqvist has a two-goal lead, I think it's nighty-night for the Senators. I don't think they're going to be able to, to, to break the king that way. And number three, they can't let Chris Neal or anyone else rattle them. They need to play Rangers hockey. They can't be chasing the Senators around. They need to do what they do. They play good, sound defensive hockey. They get a couple goals, and then they challenge you to beat King Henry. So those are what I think are the three keys to the Rangers beating the Senators in Game 7. Don, what do the Senators have to do to beat the Rangers? Kind of piggybacking off your last point, I was thinking this watching, and I hate Chris Neal as a Sabres fan, but he might he might be more valuable to his team than the He's best, a great than series. the best player in the league and Cindy Crosby was in in his series yep. and that's that's mind blowing because Crosby had five points or six points whatever he had Neil I think only has like three but he's just been he's having a great series he's been a difference maker he's getting people off their game so if you're Chris Neal keep doing what you're doing uh, Ottawa's got to find their offense a little bit I know Lundqvist is a great goalie but this. I knew Ottawa was going to keep this series close, but I thought it was going to be because of their goaltending or because of their goal scoring being superior to that of the Rangers. So they just have to get get more chances. Uh, yeah, Spezzo I think only has two goals. Yeah, Alfredson's are... been out a lot. He doesn't have much. Mahalik has been okay. So yeah, I definitely agree. They need to score a bit more. And lastly, take it take advantage of. Uh, the away teams being the better teams for whatever reason, this, right. this playoff, maybe New York comes out a little bit too fired up home teams Sometimes try to put on a show or so you got to survive that first 10 minutes or whatever they say. Cause you know, the Rangers are going to be fired up. You know, their fans are going to be fired up. Do the opposite of what Steve said, score the first goal, put some uh, doubt into their head. Uh, a few years back, the Sabres played in a game seven or six against the Rangers and, Lundqvist gave up a few early yep, goals, six. and it, it was a close game, but it looked closer than it actually was, and Lundqvist was rattled. So get the first one in on them, put put doubt in the minds of their fans and in their team, and just go from there. But like you said, it, it's not going to take many goals. All right. Well, how about this before we move on? You know what? We'll save the picks for pick four. Uh, Bruins versus Capitals has been a really interesting series. It's been some overtime been a lot of close games i'm going to take the bruins these are what i think the first three things are that the bruins need to do to beat the capitals uh holtby has never played in a game seven tim thomas obviously played in game seven in the stanley cup finals last year they need to use that to their advantage i think they need to crash the net early they need to rattle him they need to get in his head the sabers proved in one of the biggest games that hope played in the regular season that you can get to him, and if you get to him early, he starts to doubt himself. So kind of like the Rangers, I think that the Bruins need to 
maybe not score first, but make sure they get to Holpe. Even if they don't put one in, maybe knock them down one time. Maybe, you know, I'm not saying Lucic needs to run in there from the blue line and knock him down like he knocked down Ryan Miller, but use that kind of physical edge to get to Holpe and rattle him a little bit. Number two, don't let Ovechkin jump into the glass. What I mean <laughs> by that is there's a certain there's two kinds of Ovechkin. There's the really fiery, pumped up yep. kind that jumps up against the glass when he scores and hits you and and you need to make sure he's not gonna be that guy. Let someone else on the Capitals beat you. Don't let it be Alex Ovechkin. And my third thing is the Bruins have more depth than the Capitals. So the Bruins fourth line needs to be a contributor. Gregory Campbell, Dan Pae, and Thornton. These three guys need to play good fourth-line hockey. Maybe get a goal, and if they don't get a goal, get some chances. Because if the Bruins can get in a position where they can just keep rolling the four lines, they're going to outlast the Capitals, and they're going to win the series. So I think the three things are rattle Holpe, don't let Ovechkin beat you, let it be anyone else, and use your depth. Get Campbell, Pae, and Thornton involved and get some fourth-line scoring. All right, the most important thing for the – Capitals to do is what the Sabres couldn't do last year. Sorry to bring back to the Sabres again, but put game six behind you. Uh, I I know you had that game. Good point. uh, But you got to forget about it. You've been arguably the better team for most of this series. You've hit a few posts. uh, You've had some bad breaks. You're just not scoring. But you're playing your game and you're playing it well. Put game six behind you. Move on to game seven. You've beaten them twice already, I believe, on the road. Just yep, do what you've been row. doing. Uh, they need to. The second thing is keep shooting and keep your shots against down. It seems like every game, if you look at the the score sheet for this, Holpe has made forty saves in a game. You, you don't. You you can't let the Bruins her the defense the first team. That's a defense first, more battle tested team. You can't allow them to have forty shots on goal. You're not exactly playing the Flyers or the Penguins here. Keep the shots against down. Play sound defense. Mike Green needs to jump into the play. Like it. Uh, get offense, but play responsible defense. So like you said, you don't want to put it on Holpe's shoulders. He's their third-string goalie. He's played great, but it shouldn't be his game to win. Um, and, again, my last thing is play your away game. Play aggravating hockey. Play boring hockey. Uh, don't get involved in the physical stuff, don't let – I mean, I'm not saying to shy away from it or to cower when they come after you, but don't hit – you don't need to wake a sleeping giant in Lucic. Let him be Let him be aggravating. Just turn and skate away. Beat him on the scoreboard. You don't need to get involved in the physical play because you can't win that game. And then get on power plays and let guys like Semin and Ovechkin shoot. Don't just – just play your game. I think the, the fact that this is an away game works perfectly for them. If Ovechkin – like you said, can play like the excited Ovechkin without the need for home fans cheering him on, then I think being away and keeping them settled down defensively, I think that actually plays into their favor. And so far in the series, it's worked out. All right, so here's where we're going to go from here. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Alex Belth. It's a great interview. I really enjoyed it. We're going to talk about the Yankees, and we're going to talk about sports writing. Then we're going to come back, pick four. We're going to make some picks on these games, make a bold prediction, and then we're going to sign off. It's been a long podcast, I know, but hang in with us because you're going to love this Alex Belth interview.
Our next guest has one of the most diverse and eclectic resumes in the history of the sportscasters. He has worked in the film industry on known titles such as Swim Fan and the cult hit The Big Lebowski. He also worked on the Ken Burns Masterpiece Baseball. He was also the driving force behind lasting Yankee Stadium memories, Unforgettable Tales from the House that Ruth Built, featuring contributions by Bob Costas, Joe Poznanski, Rob Neuer, Tony Kornheiser, and our good friend Jane Levy. He has also compiled a series of essays by the great sports writer Pat Jordan, appropriately titled The Best Sports Writing of Pat Jordan. He is making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the proprietor of the Bronx Banter blog, Alex Belth. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm good, man. What do you hear? What do you say? Oh, not much. Just uh, hanging out here in Buffalo, New York. Uh, we got a little snow in the uh, forecast today out of nowhere. We had um, we had shorts in uh, shorts in uh, March. I was wearing shorts during the NCAA tournament, and uh, now it's almost May, and we got snowflakes. So only in <laughs> Buffalo, right? Absolutely. So I was uh, thinking the other day. Well, first of all, uh, last week I was flipping through the New Sports Illustrated on the iPad, and there you were in the uh, scorecard section, and. Uh, Totally got me hooked on the book, and uh, me and you worked on setting it up, and uh, Mark's going to be on the show later in this month, but maybe want to catch up with you. For one thing, uh, all kinds of cool Yankee stuff to talk about here at the start of the season, and uh, I wanted to check in to see how things were going and see how the blog was doing. So let's start there. Uh, good start for the Yanks, huh? Especially Jeter, who really struggled in April last year, almost struggled all the way up until the 3,000th hit, but he's he's on a tear this year, huh? Yeah, so far it's see the ball, hit the ball like uh, classic Jeter. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, you know, some folks have said that, you know, Jeter really did put a lot of strain on himself last year when he was approaching that 3,000 hit mark. Uh, maybe not so much really quite this early in the season, but he was definitely looking at his age. And uh, right now it seems like the guy is uh, tapped into the fountain of youth, unless you're... Uh, of the more cynical sort and think maybe he's using some uh, magic vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Jeter's usually not one associated with uh, no. performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, God forbid you would ever assume that. But, uh, no, I mean, it's it's great to see. I mean, both with Jeter and probably particularly Rivera, who, you know, a lot of people suspect this will really be his final year. You know, as a generation of Yankee fans have you know, just been so spoiled by watching their success. It's it's pretty cool, and especially now Jeter, you know, he passed Dave Winfield the other day on the... It's not even a matter of him having 3,000 hits now. It's, you know, you know where in the top 10 is he going to finish, you know? And that, that's, you know, as, an, as far as an individual thing goes, I mean, that's it's just a pleasure to watch. Yeah, I mean, he's been incredible. We're taping on Monday night. We're going to air this on Tuesday, but... You know, they're playing Texas, and here he is already 3-for-3 three three tonight. Got the average up to 408. Doesn't have any errors yet this season. Um, they've been doing, I thought, a pretty good job of kind of mixing him in and out of the field and uh, getting him some time just to hit. But he's really uh, he's really played well this year, and, and I'm one of the people who really loves Jeter and admires everything he's accomplished on the field, and uh, I'm excited to see him playing this well. Oh, yeah. it's, it's I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, the guy's off. You know, for Yankee fans, he's, I mean, he's, a, he's one of the great homegrown players that they've ever had. And uh, so it's actually, 
you know, when when Jeter retires, more than anyone, I think uh, you'll sort of feel the passing of the era. I remember people sort of felt that way when Torrey was around. You know, when Joe Torrey left, that would be. It's not really about Torrey. It's more about the players. You know, Rivera. Shoot, he's forty-two, and obviously you'll feel that because. You know, I mean, shoot, the Yankees have had some decent closers in the past. You know, Wetland was pretty good for a couple of years there, and Rigetti in the eighties, but they're regular closers. <laughs> you know, they're guys who have good years and bad years and good couple of weeks and terrible couple of weeks. And uh, I don't know if there's ever been a player who's, I mean, in some ways Rivera is my favorite athlete of all time because, or at least favorite jock to root for, because for the longest time he's made me appreciate his greatness. I mean, you know, a closer isn't really as valuable as an everyday player or as, uh, starting pitcher, and I think starting maybe in 2000, 2000, certainly after after 2001 when they lost the World Series. Right. You know, there was the real feeling of, okay, guys had a great run here. That's really about it for elite closers. You know, if you look at, you know, Eckersley or guys who have been great, you know, between five and seven years, they're at that peak. And then afterwards, I mean, it's been 10 years. Right. And the guy is still... Before, but, so what I mean to say is that for the past 10 years, I've always felt as if, well, this is it, you, you know? And uh, it was like that line in um, The Princess Bride where the Dread Pirate, Pirate Robert says, well, you know, good night, Wesley. Tomorrow I'll probably kill you. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, tomorrow will probably be the end of Rivera's career. But so far, the guy just keeps going. And, I mean... John DeRosa, who writes for my site with me, he's a guy who played baseball at Georgetown. You know, he, he, he emailed me after the game with the Twins the other day, and he said, do you ever see what happened with Rivera and Maurer before? And Maurer was up in this... Rivera had a, a, a three-batter outing. And Maurer, who's obviously got great bat control, yeah. um, was up second, and he lo- he lost the bat. I mean, he swung... The bat flew out of his hands, and he hit the ball. He hit the ball the second. I, I don't remember seeing guys, like, lose control of the bat. And it was just like a typical, you know, Rivera ground out to second base. But he, he always just sort of makes you feel like you're watching him for the first time. At least at least he does for me. Or And I, I can't speak for all Yankee fans, but, you know, so you hear people say, oh, Yankee fans are spoiled. They don't know what they have. Bro, we know exactly what we have. <laughs> and we know what it's going to look like when he's gone. So, you know, that's something that always makes every, you know, forget season, but just every pitch, every game that he's in, something to savor. You know, you mentioned 2001, and do you ever wonder why Torrey decided to bring the infield in? I mean, because nah. if, if you look at that hit, and it's like if they were in regular depth, Jeter just takes a step back and catches that ball. I don't know that they needed the way Rivera pitches it. It was always a strange strategy to me. It's just pain now. Now, you know, I, I try not to, Fortunately for the Yankees, you know, being you Yankee, there's always so many more positive things that you can bank on. Right. But right. When, I, when I start to think about, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a masochist pursuit when you try to figure out why things went they, the way they did when they get screwed up, you know. Uh, you know, it was so painful the way that they lost that World Series, and yet, you know, 
they had won three freaking World Series before that. It wasn't right. like they were the 75 Red Sox or something like that. And, you know, you know whenever I think of that World Series, I always think about the two home runs or three home runs, really. You know, the home run that um, Brocious hit and then the one that yeah. Cheater hit and the one Gino that Martinez hit. hit. Those are, that's really all I think about when I think about that World Series anyway. I almost forget that yeah, they lost it. It's for, almost for secondary. Me, I'm such a – I mean, I'm so limited in a way. I can't even – when they when they play those games on Yankee Rewind, I can't even watch them. Not not because they weren't great, which they were, but I just I know that the final result was that they lost the World Series, so I can't really take so much pleasure in them. And but in the long run, there was a lot of really kind of just things in that World Series. First was that the Yankees were finally out Yankeed. The way they lost that game was the way that they had been beating teams for, you know, the previous five years for the most part, except for 97. So there was something really fitting about it. And, you know, to say that you, 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 you know, every year that they, they defended their title, you know, and they did it for three years. And in the fourth year of them defending their title, you had to beat Rivera in the ninth inning of the last game of the year to, to take it from them. I remember, I remember I was, you know, I was up for hours that night, and the thing that made me feel the best the next day is when I read Tom Boswell, the great baseball writer for the Washington Post. He, he, he wrote in his recap the next day, he said, surely no team has ever bequeathed its title more, begr- more begrudgingly, or is it more grudgingly or begrudgingly, one of those, or, or with greater honor. And I remember he, he put it in such a sort of like kind of nice way that I said, uh, you know, I thank God for good writers. Sometimes, even right. in a loss, they make you they make it feel just a little bit better, and they put it and they're really in an apt perspective. You know, and and especially after the events of of nine eleven here in New York, um, you know, something like as trivial as sports uh, really did take on a certain kind of elevated significance, only in that it was an elevated distraction from what had gone on. And really, the Yankees were outclassed by they were outclassed by Oakland. They were outclassed by now the Mariners in the regular season that year, and they and then then the Diamondbacks were that much better than them, and so the, the Yankees really gave at least Yankee fans in New York. Not I wouldn't say that they gave Mets fans still hated the Yankees, but they gave the Yankee fans everything we could have wanted for. As you mentioned, those two great games. They only just they just didn't give us the last. <laughs> they didn't give us the period at the end of the sentence. Right. But hey, you know, this is what it is. One more thing Baseball's about more. Lo- Baseball is more losing than winning, even for the fucking Yankees, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, one more thing about Rivera. You know, I, I just read Josh Hamilton's book. I mean, it's not going to go down as one of the great pieces of literature, but there was a funny story in there about how during the first spring training that he was back with Cincinnati after he, I guess, beaten his drug problem, um, he faced Rivera, and the guys on the team were giving him the scouting report. You know, it's the one pitch, it's the cutter. So he goes up there, you know, and he's sitting dead red, and the first two come in, fastball. You know, he misses it. Second one, fastball. He's closer. He fouls it off. And then he says he's sitting dead red for that third one, and Rivera throws a changeup, and he looks awful, and he strikes up, and Rivera and Posada are cracking up. Hamilton turns to Posada and says, you know, what's so funny? He said, you just seen Mo throw one of the two chains ups he's going to throw all season. So, you know, as incredible as Rivera's career has been, I think it's even more incredible when you think that he's done it with the one pitch. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly one pitch, but it's for the most part one pitch. And he didn't really develop that pitch until 90, I think it's 90, certainly, I think it's 98 even. 
I mean, that's, that, that great year that he had as wetland setup guy, he was throwing fastballs, you know, four-seamers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, basically you're right. It's, it's, it's the cutter, and then it's variations of the cutter. You know, I mean, he, he does that backdoor cutter to freeze guys, and, and then he keeps – yeah, what's also – he's throwing – it's not that he's not throwing hard, but he's throwing 91. You know, it's not like he's throwing 96. So it's really that late movement, you know, and, and um, there was a bunch of pieces last year. I'm not sure if it was Jack Curry, and I apologize for not being able to cite the, the guy who wrote the original article on this, but there was a couple of pieces on David Robertson about how as a small guy, his, his ball had a lot of pop on it. And it was, they talked about how just he had fluid mechanics, and here we released the ball a little closer to home plate than most pitchers, and that sort of accounted for the fact that the ball seemed to really snap on guys. I always wondered if Rivera didn't have a little bit of that, too, because, you know, that pitch just seems to sneak up on guys, even though, as you said, it's, it's pretty much the one pitch. So, guys, it's not like it's a surprise, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, the Yankees put another uh, great chapter into the book of the Yankees and Red Sox rivalry on Saturday. I, I went from everyone on Twitter complaining that Fox wouldn't switch off of this terrible 9 to nothing game so that we could see a perfect game to everyone talking about, holy shit, it's 9-8 to eight all of a sudden, and <laughs> the Yankees go on to win that game 15-9. to nine. And I just think, you know, Red Sox might have had a couple of years in there, and they might have had that great comeback from the 3 to nothing. but it's always going to be this way where no matter what, no matter what position the Red Sox are in, it just seems like it's not enough when it comes to the Yankees. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I'm uh, certainly and it's taking the the big picture uh, perspective. You're right. Um, although, you know, the the Yankees haven't always dominated the Red Sox because there's been periods where the Yankees have been crappy and the Red like Sox the have 80s, been good. Yeah. They just weren't winning like multiple World Series during those those years. But um, and I'm not really ready to to write the Red Sox off yet. I'll, I'll be really curious to see how they do over the next month where they have a relatively easy or, or soft schedule. And, um, you know, like if they went under 500 over the next month, you know, they'd be in some trouble. But I would expect them, they still have a good team. Their, their pitching has been killing them. Um, and, you know, while I, I never really would call any April series legendary or big, this weekend certainly was pleasurable. I mean, I will, I will concede that I did. So my wife and I celebrated our anniversary on Saturday, and we had a great time with the way that they won that game. That was a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, I think the problem with the Red Sox in the long run isn't just the Yankees, but it's the Tigers and it's the it's the Rangers, it's the Angels, it's the Rays. I mean, there's just it's. I think it, the American League is actually a lot of fun right now because yeah, it's stacked. It's not just the Yankees and the Red Sox, and then everybody else. Really, it's the Rangers, then the Tigers, and then everybody else. You know, I mean, the Yankees are right there. I don't want to call the Yankees, a, you know, an underdog or anything. But, you know, I mean, the Tigers are two-time champs, AL champs, and, I mean, they've been whipping everyone's ass, you know? Yeah, yeah, up until tonight. And I think that's one thing, you know, depending on how the game finishes, it's still early. You know, it's 7-1 to one Yankees right now in the sixth. But 
I think the Yankees maybe are sending a little bit of a message to the Rangers that the Rangers aren't the only team in the American League that can bash the ball. I mean, if you look at the slugging percentages of some of these Rangers, they're pretty damn high. I mean, Josh Hamilton is slugging 754 right now, which is off the yeah. charts. But, you know, the Yankees have a lineup that can bash the ball, too. I mean, Granderson had three home runs before the sixth inning the other day. You know, Teixeira hit a bomb in Boston the other day. I mean, the Yankees can really the mash the ball. The bomb last week at the stadium. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember against the Angels? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean... Toy Hunter just said, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this team, they can they can mash. What what are the negatives of this Yankees team? If, if in October it doesn't work out the way Yankees fans want, what do you think is going to be the Achilles heel? Yeah, you know, it's hard to say because... Uh, what the Achilles heel could be over the long season could or could not doom them in the playoffs. I mean, it just seems to be that, you know, being the best team over 162 games doesn't really matter. I mean, it's not insignificant, but, I mean, if you look at the Giants and the Cardinals who won the World Series the last couple of years, it's, you know, they got hot late and everything went well for them. And so there's no real, you know, after Sabathia, there's no telling what the order of, uh, of the Yankees starting pitchers are now. I mean, Pineda looks like he might be hurt worse than they had anticipated. What does that mean? Is he done for the year? Is he a guy who misses half the year? You know, does, does he come back in August and then he's fresh and he's terrific? You know, does Kuroda get swallowed up by the American League East or is he solid? Does Pettit give him? You know, there's a lot of things that are question marks there. And then, you know, really, and this is one of the things that's really hurt the Red Sox so much. I mean, they've just gotten hurt. And not just the old guys. You know, I mean, obviously the Yankees are being really cautious with Jeter and Rodriguez there. Rodriguez has really been, you know, starting to break down, you know, over the last couple of years. So, you know, a lot of things that can doom you are, are, are just bad luck. Um, so I don't really know the answer to that question, uh, but... You know, you just sort of hope that your team sort of has everything going as they get into the playoffs. I mean, that sort of seems to be the key. The sportscasters are here with one of our favorites, Alex Belt, who you can find on Twitter, uh, at Alex Belt. And, of course, his Bronx banter blogs is one of the most unique and cool on the Internet. One cool thing I love about the blog is, is kind of how you guys handle art and and, and writing and things like that, culture. And I wanted to ask you, because you have such a great opinion on this, in the mail today, uh, we got a book, Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. We're actually excited because Frank's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks here. Uh, oh, sweet. Yeah, we're looking forward to that for sure. Tell me what you think about Frank DeFord and, and what his legacy is as a sports writer and kind of where he fits in the kind of lexicon of sports writers. Well, I don't know what I, – I really don't know if I could speak to his legacy, but, you know – I guess you'd say his legacy is that he was one of the real studs at Sports Illustrated during its heyday in the 60s and particularly the 70s. You know, Dan Jenkins is the is the guy who I think was their real first, you know, standalone star there. Bud Schrake was also there. Um, you know, those two guys were, were from Texas and had wonderful stylists. And DeFord was a guy who started... I think he started as an NBA guy for them. Yep, he did. Um, and and then he, you know, branched out into doing uh, bonus pieces. And he was just, you know, he wrote some of the, the classic bonus pieces uh, of his time. You know, Mark Cram, 
uh, senior was there. He wasn't senior, but you know, Mark Cram was there. Right. And you know, part of what made SI so so terrific during the Andre Laguerre days, uh, that, that was their managing editor in the '60s and the early '70s, is that they just had they were really a writer's publication, and they had so many distinct voices. I mean, just thinking about DeFord Jenkins and Mark Cram, just to pick three guys. Uh, you know, Pat Jordan was there. Um, you know, there, there was there was just a ton of guys, and they all had their own style. Um, and DeFord was, you know, clearly one of their best guys. I mean, you go back, and you know, he 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 could write about stuff from you know an obscure high school football coach in the South to to Jimmy Connors. I mean, his piece on Jimmy Connors was great, just talking about the psychology of of Connors when Connors was really on top, uh, you know, his relationship with his mother. And uh, he was just a master of doing that bonus piece. And then obviously, you know, he went on to you know, write, write books and, and then, you know, he's on television now. And so, you know, he, he, he's a guy who's moved beyond just doing uh, the bonus piece. But, you know, DeFord is, you know, for some people, he's, he's the greatest, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call anybody the greatest because, as uh, Vic Siegel, the late uh, the late uh, columnist for the Daily News and before that the Post, told me once, you know, he said, "Who's the greatest?" He says, "On any given night, any of us were the greatest." You know, when you whether you're writing a column or a bonus piece, uh, but you know, obviously, the four's up there with 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 the, the legends of his time. That's for sure. You know, you kind of you kind of talked about. Sports Illustrated and and how their strength in the you know sixties and seventies was their deep bench and I still I still think that's a strength to this day. They have so many different writers who can write so many different kinds of pieces, but they've kind of taken a hit in the last year or so. Heyman went to CBS, you know, Poznanski is gone uh, with some unknown unnamed venture up to this point. We'll find out soon, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Who do you like to read, and and not just Sports Illustrated, but just in general, who who do you think is really at the top of the craft these days? Jeez, putting me on the spot now. I'm just trying to think uh, for sports writers. Well, at, at SI, I, I love Lee Jenkins. I think Lee Jenkins can pretty much do everything. Um, he doesn't write a. He doesn't really write bonus pieces, but um, we yeah, love you know, Jenkins. He can, do, ba- he can yeah. do baseball. He can do. He does. He does basketball. He's just a really versatile guy, and I think you know somebody that I'm always you know when I see his byline there, I'm always sort of eager to read it and then. And we'll read it even if I'm not interested in, in the subject. Um, uh, you know, one guy that I wish wrote more um, is Tommy Craig's, who's over at Deadspin, uh, who do- does mostly editorial stuff these days. But I thought, you know, some of his long-form stuff w- was really terrific. And, um, you know, there's a kid named Eric Nussbaum who writes a, co-writes a site called Pitchers and Poets. He also writes for the classical. You know, he's got a lot of insightful things to say. Um, I like Jeff McGregor and, and Howard Bryant over there at uh, at ESPN. Uh, Chris Jones, who does some stuff for the magazine, but also Esquire. He's not really uh, a sports writer per se. Uh, but you're right. There are there are a ton of guys out there these days that uh, you know just really fine writers. What do you think about Grantland and kind of their commitment to the long form piece and kind of revitalizing it on the internet? What kind of a job do you think they've done in their first year? Uh, up and down for me. Um, 
I was really excited about it when it came out, and I think they they've hit more of their stride now. Uh, but I can't say it's a stride that I'm really locked into myself. Um, I don't read a lot of their uh, pop culture stuff. Okay. Um, the guys who've been writing, you know, and I can't even say that I've read enough of it to give it a fair shake or critical assessment. Um, I always read what Jonah Carey's got going on there for baseball. And actually my favorite, you know, the Bill Simmons mailbag stuff is always fun, and occasionally he'll do a piece that, you know, is really engaging in that kind of really accessible, you know, likable way that he can write Simmons, that is. Um, And I really like, I think my favorite thing that they do is their director's cut series, where they'll take, um, they'll reprint uh, an old uh, magazine article. They did one for Kornheiser, something that he wrote on Nolan Ryan for uh, uh, Inside Sports. Uh, They did one that uh, Paul Hemphill wrote on College Hoops, uh, not so long ago, which is great because Paul Hemphill died last year, and not a really terrific writer, not a sports writer, although he did write a lot of stuff for Sport Magazine in the 70s, but a newspaper writer and a memoirist wrote a great book on um, called the, Na- the Nashville Sound. Shoot, I hope I got the title right. Anyway, he, he wrote a great book about country music, he wrote a biography of Hank Williams, and he wrote uh, one of the slept-on baseball novels, which is called Long Gone. Uh, which is a novel about minor league baseball in the 50s that was made into a movie with William Peterson and Virginia Madsen in the 80s. And it was an HBO movie. It was originally going to be a a theatrical release, but it came out the year before Bull Durham did. And there was that weird little stretch in the 80s where, you know, the, The Natural came out in 84, and then there was Long Gone came out, and Eight Men Out came out, and then there was... Bull Durham and Major League, and then I guess it sort of capped off with Field of Dreams, which I guess is a baseball movie. But, uh, I, I, you know, Long Gone had its flaws as a movie. It was a little predictable and pat in certain ways, but it, was, it had that sort of vulgar spirit um, of sports. Not quite slap shot, you know, but it was a little closer to that, and William Peterson was great. And uh, that was all from, from Hemphill. Uh, so anyway, he a little on a tangent, but I mean, that's one thing that ESPN, uh, that Grantland's done that, I, you know, I just can't wait to they do their next one. And it's kind of a couple of cool oral history things. They did a really nice oral history thing on, um, speaking of DeFord on the National, and I hope when you have DeFord on. Yeah, I did see that. You, you, yeah, you talked to him about it because the National was a, was a big deal. And one of his, the guys who was an editor with him, who was, was a guy named Rob Flader, uh, who edited what they what they called uh, the main? I think it was called the main event, which was their bonus piece thing that appeared like four or five times a week. And Jonette Howard from ESPN, Charlie Pierce, who writes for Grantland. Oh, Charlie Pierce, of course. That's the other guy. That's who I read for at Grantland. Uh, and Jane writes for them. Yeah, Jane. Uh, but it was Charlie Pierce, Pete Richmond, Peter Richmond, Jonette Howard, and I think it was Ian Thompson who were their sort of bonus piece stars. And, and Rob Flader was the, was the editor of that section. And Flader just uh, did a great book, a, a, a Yankee essay. It's called Damn Yankees, um, which for Yankee fans is, is another you know, great read. It's got, you know, like it's got Charlie Pierce and it's got the Ford and Roy Blount and Pete Dexter. I mean, that, he's got some monster essays in it. So that, and, and Flader's in that oral history series. So, to me, that, that, that's been the stuff that I've cherry-picked out of there that I've really 
you know, gotten the most out of. But I'm a nerd for that stuff. And, you know, on Bronx Banter, I've been fortunate to, um, you know, develop these sort of nice relationships with writers over the years. And, and guys have let me reprint stuff on the site, which, you know, I'm not, I don't get, I'm not making any money off doing it. I just think it's great to, to put pieces online that normally you'd have to, you know, be a nerd like me and go to a microfilm of a, of a library somewhere to dig out. But guys like Pete Dexter and Richard Ben Kramer and, you know, the John Shulian and, and Pat Jordan, and these guys, you know, did some terrific stuff. And I, I've been able to give them a home on Bronx, on Bronx Banter, W.C. Hines, you know, and I, you know, to me, I, I just feel privileged to be to be able to do that, but also, you know, in the hopes that somebody is doing a simple Google search on somebody one day and, and they track down some stuff. Oh shit! I you know hadn't read this before. Cool, it's out there. You know, I mean, and you mentioned, you know, at the in the intro, you know, like any normal day, which is written by Mark Cram Jr. Right. Uh, who, who's another you know s- super fine writer. You know, I mean, both in his newspaper stuff for the Philly Daily News, and uh, actually, you know, tomorrow, which I guess is the day that this will be appearing, Tuesday, he's got a, a Q&A up on Bronx Banter uh, for, for this new book, and it's his first book that he's ever written. And Mark's 56, and he's a, a wonderful writer with a clean, precise kind of prose style and a real big heart, you know, I mean... Mark usually tackles pretty tough s- subjects, you know, uh, and he always does it with uh, with a real, with a real sure touch. Very different writer from his father, who wrote a lot about boxing and wrote with a very, I guess, for it's a shitty word, poetic. But uh, his dad had a real, uh, you know, visu- uh, a, a virtuoso kind of prose, and Mark writes quite differently, but, you know, writes the kind of stories that his dad probably couldn't have written. And, you know, his first book is just, it's just terrific. And, uh, you know, if you check out the site, I'll have a big Q&A up with him and, and, and we get into it, both his relationship with his dad uh, and, uh, and, and, and this book, which is, you know, really moving. Well, that's awesome, and we got to thank you for hooking us up with Mark because Mark's going to be on our show at the end of May, and not only is he going to send us a book so that we can check it out and and be qualified to talk with him about it, but he's also going to give us a second copy, which we're going to be able to give away to a listener. So we've really been able to see the generous side to Mark, and we're really looking forward to, you know, to to uh, to talking with him at the end of the month, and we owe that to you. You, it's not the first time you hooked us up either. You know, you hooked us up with the editors of the At the Ring anthology, which we did something with last year. So that was great. We really appreciate oh, nice. you. And just like that, I mean, thirty five minutes just about is gone. And I don't want to keep you anymore. I want to let you go watch the Yankees game, but uh, we appreciate. The you mean time. dancing with the stars? Dancing right? with the that's stars, meant, of course. Right? So, yeah, that's what I meant. Although that's my wife's got me in chains tonight. No, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be following online. You know, like a true geek right. next to my wife. You know, on the TV watching Dancing with the Stars. But hey, listen, she gets two nights a week. You know, right. the least I can do. So what's her other night? Results? Oh, dude, oh results I mean, that's show. Find out the right, results. Right, 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 right. Okay, of course. Uh, slow <laughs> with me. I think Donald Driver is the clear favorite. I don't know about you. Yeah, as long as I get rid of Urkel, man, I've had enough of Urkel. 
I don't know, it's safe pornography, you know, because all these girls, are they're dressed in like nothing, and they're, they're, you know, so I basically, I get to watch it and make, I'm, I'm, she doesn't put a muzzle on me all the time. I usually get to have a running commentary throughout. Nice. It's only in certain key moments that I got to shut my trap, but I'm, right. I'm pretty good about it. Hey, it's two nights a week. She puts up with me in baseball for the rest of the year, and she actually likes baseball. It's the football and the basketball that she puts up with. Uh-huh. Uh, so, anyway, it's the least I can do. <laughs> all right. Thanks, man. We really appreciate it. We'll look forward to next time. Absolutely, man. Take care. Thanks, Alex. All right, I want to thank Alex Belt for being with us on the show. And I got to thank you guys for being patient and stick with us. I know it's been a long podcast today, but we've always debated this. It's like, do you split it into two parts? Do you make it two shows? And I still think, and I know a lot of listeners have said this to me, they just want the one file and they can kind of do it as they want to do it. Yeah, it's not the year of dial-up modems anymore where to download a 60 or 70 meg file it takes all day so that's why on the front page we throw those timestamps in there if you're really if you're coming here just for alex spouth then uh more power to you i'll have the timestamp up there where you can see his his part of it but we got the rundown up there you can see what everything else is up there and check it out there's all sorts of different information in this podcast a couple of quick notes you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter, we're at sports underscore casters. You can email us anytime, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Don't forget that Don will be blogging on Thursday night, first round of the NFL draft at the sportscasters.blogspot.com. You can also find our other blog, the sportscasters.tumblr.com. You can find all of this on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget about our other podcast with Football Nation, who is at Fball Nation on Twitter. Uh, the podcast this week features Stuart Mandel of Sports Illustrated, and you can find that at www.footballnation.com. All right, last thing of business today is pick four. Oh, and I got to thank all of our guests, uh, Tass from the Basketball Jones, Mark Titus, Adam Rank, and Alex Belf. Couldn't have a better show. Yeah, real quick, you just you said it already, but I, you can't stress enough as far as we're, we're a lot of places right now. So check the website. I'll be sure to update it this week because I know certain things like where we are in Football Nation aren't on there and maybe the Tumblr link isn't up there yet. But I'll get all that done this week. Sports-casters.com is like our home base for everything. So if you can't remember all the things and our email addresses and Twitter handles and all that stuff, sports-casters.com has everything. And, uh, you know, maybe this is a good week to email us at sportscasters at gmail.com and let us know in the future how you want it, us to handle it when we have a large show like this. Sure. Let us know your preferences. Are your preferences a part one and a part two? Are your preferences to have two different shows? Are your preferences to have the one long file? Let us know because we want to do what works best for you. All right, pick four is the last thing today. I had a dreadful week. I was due for one of these. I've been doing really well this season, but I went 0-4. That brings me to 36-29, and but I didn't get blown out. That's the thing. I had the Rangers over the centers. I lost that one in overtime. Um, I thought the Devils would take care of business. That's the one I missed by a lot, and yeah, we, we both did. missed that. Yeah. So we both thought the Devils would win in five. They're down 3-2 to two right now, fighting for their lives in a game Florida, six. Florida, to be cliche, just has that they want it type they they took that underdog mentality we talked about early on and they they could be a dangerous team i think and rats are everywhere <laughs> uh i also i had took a risk with beckett i know i was taking a risk with beckett 
but the Rangers outmashed the Sox that day, 6-3. to three. And uh, I had the Kings close it out, the Canucks in four. Of course, they did in five. Uh, Don went two and two. He had the Sens over the Rangers in our game of the week. He won that one three to two in overtime. He had Zimmerman and the Nationals over the Astros. Won that one three to two. Lost uh, when the Blues beat the Sharks two to one. And like we said, we both missed the Devils. Don kick us off this week's game of the week. All right, the game of this week we talked about it enough earlier. It's Capitals at the Bruins. That's Wednesday at seven thirty on NBC Sports Network. I'm just gonna go with my pre-playoff pick of the Bruins. I would love the Capitals to knock them out. As a Sabres fan, I have to hate the Bruins. But I picked them earlier. I think I might have even picked them in seven. They earned home ice advantage for this reason, so don't squander it and win in front of your fans. You know, I'm exactly the same way. I'd like to pick the Bruins because I think the way things have played out, I give them an edge. But before the playoffs started, I picked Pick the, the Capitals, Capitals in seven. Right. So what, it would be silly of me to switch that now. So I'm going to stick with the Capitals in seven. I hope I'm right. Like you said, neither of us are Bruins fans. But I think the way it's played out with the Capitals already winning two games in Boston, I don't really see them winning a third. You know, And I think that the Capitals had a chance to win that game on Sunday in overtime at home. Just like the Sabres last year had a game in overtime on Sunday at home. Leno scored for the Flyers, and the Sabres didn't even compete in Game 7. Nope. So I'm a little worried about that. But if I picked the Capitals in 7 before, I got what yeah, I wanted. So number, I'm right? going to stick with the Caps. All right, usually I do the pitcher here, but just to book on the other hockey game, I'm gonna. my host choice this week is the other Game 7. That's the Senators at Rangers. Yep. That game will be on CBC and probably – MSNBC or one of those other channels. I would think it'll be on the NBC Sports Network. Right. Uh, it's not announced yet because there's potentially two Game 7s with the Jersey-Florida series, and they don't want them to start at the exact same time, which is something awesome that hockey does, and they really get right. Uh, that said, again, I don't know why. As a Sabres fan, I guess I really should be indifferent or dislike both of these teams, but I'd probably rather see the Senators win just because I guess upsets are fun and Daniel Alfredson's getting old. Uh, but I picked the Rangers, I think, in six or seven, so why change it now? Give me the Rangers at home. I'm going to pick the Rangers as well. I think it's going to go with a little bit of your Bruins logic where they worked all season to play this game at home. I think that the Rangers are not the kind of team who sweep a team. you know. So I don't think that I feel any less about them because they have to play the eighth seed in game seven. I think it's just their style lends them to lose a one to nothing here and there instead of win one. But I think that they've earned home ice advantage, so I'm going to pick the Rangers over the Suns as well. That's my host choice as well. All right, my pitcher this week is piggybacking off his perfect game. I'm going to go with Philip Humber. Uh, they're playing the slumping Red Sox this Thursday at home. Uh, the White Sox have been pretty good this year, and that game is at 8-10. Give me Humber. I have the exact same one. We do this stuff apart, but we kind of think with the same brain sometimes. And uh for the reasons Don gave you, I'm going to go with Humber as well. All right, my bold prediction this week, I'm going to try to put my Mel Kuyper hat on. And I'm going to say the Bills don't pick Riley Reef like many people have predicted. They don't take Michael Floyd like many people have predicted. I'm going to say they take Stephen Gilmore. Uh, at, but, at 10. At 10. Yep. Buddy Nix loves cornerbacks. He constantly says it. So unless he's really blowing smoke to try to – distract people from what he's thinking. I, I think he's true to his word, and I think uh, this guy's really climbed the draft boards, and he might not even be available there at 10, but that's if he is, I say that's who the Bills take. All right, my bold prediction is maybe not my boldest of bold predictions, but 
keep in mind that each team has a 25-man roster or whatever, and I'm picking one guy to score the game-winning goal in Game oh, 7. Th- that's pretty bold, I think. So I'm going to pick Brad Richards to score the game-winning goal in Game 7. He was great in Game 6. He lives for moments this like this. This is what this. they got him for. This yeah. is what they got him for. So I'm going to say he steps up to the plate and does it and gets the game-winning goal. I'm not saying he's going to score a goal. I'm saying it's going to be the game-winning goal that brings New York into Round 2 uh, to face off against to be determined still. Yep. Uh, because we're going to have to see how those other series play out. Again, I want to thank our guest today, Tass, our one-man name, because we don't want to screw up his first na- or his last name, uh, Mark Titus, Adam Rank, Alex Bell. Thank you so much. Don, cue the hip. All right.